Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today is Madeline DeCotes from the Honeycomb Collective Almanacs, and we're going to be doing a casual astrology chat today here in the studio in Denver. Uh, so, hey, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, we've met uh, a couple times before in person at like conferences and stuff, but this is your first time to Denver. Yeah, yeah. First, like I mentioned, I'd been in Boulder a little bit, but not Denver proper, and certainly not the recording studio where the magic happens. Yeah, well, and you uh, famously did the Capricorn episode uh, with me and Diana. We did that. What was that? Was like a year ago now? Yeah, I think it was. It was actually January of this year. Wow. Okay, that's wow. crazy. Yeah, uh, time flies. So yeah, we've got a bunch of different topics. We're gonna do. I've been doing these casual astrology chats where I have people out to the studio and kind of recreate what it's like to just sit down with an astrologer and talk and get to know them and talk about some things that are on our mind right now. So, um, yeah, um, the past month of astrology has been kind of intense with all of the eclipses and everything and everything happening in world events and, and studying all of that. I just released mm -hmm. Eclipses Part 2 today, um, and yeah, I feel like we've found a good methodology for that. Had you ever done much with eclipses in the past, or have eclipses been very important for you in your life? Yeah, definitely personal eclipses. I've tracked for about as long as I've been studying astrology, which is only since 2017. Uh, but the take on like mundane events with eclipses like is super interesting. I've kind of just started listening to that episode that you did with Nick Dagan Best and all of the um I guess the ancient significations about you know, like the deaths of leaders at those times and such makes a lot of sense, especially in terms of like what would be the most exciting, scary, visible celestial phenomenon that ancient people would have been observing. Yeah. It feels like it's almost the origins of you know, um, astrology in that way. Yeah, that's kind of what we found is that there may have been like these kings, three kings that died in succession thousands of years ago. And that may have been like when people first started paying attention to like there's something, mm -hmm. something going on here. Absolutely. I'm assuming as well, if it was an observable eclipse, eclipse from those locations, you know, how much more insane that would be to ancient people. Yeah, for sure. Um, just because the light is just visibly like snuffed out for a time. And I think that was one of the things I've come to understand over the past few years, why that symbolism so much then connects with some of the not good, sometimes negative things associated with eclipses. Totally. Is it spooky? The like were you did you observe the like the North American eclipse that happened in 2017? Yeah, I didn't go to like the exact path of totality, but um, Lisa and I did go out to like the local park here and watched it. And it is eerie, just like you're in the, in the middle of the day, you're hanging out and it's a bright sunny day. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's like nighttime or, or dusk at the very best case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it was, I didn't go to complete totality either, but it was 99 point something percent where I was at the time in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And for a while you see the kind of like snaky light shimmering on the ground and then like you're saying everything goes dark or relatively close to dark and i noticed that the animals started like you were, were silent or were you know sort of that feeling of all of a sudden there's a yeah a little bit of a, a dip of nighttime even the animals were kind of observing it in this way for sure so, yeah you think of how potent that is for just all you know all of life really how disturbing that moment is in this way. Yeah, for sure. That it's like throwing something off. And it does, that gives you a glimpse of the like chaotic energy that sort of surrounds eclipses mm -hmm. um, sometimes, which has been very evident lately. 
Um, but I mean, one of the things I like is now I, I have a thing now where I can just like explain it easily. Like I went to a coffee shop recently. I was talking to the barista and explaining, it's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing a podcast on eclipses. And he's like, okay, well, what's interesting about that? And I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you 20 top 10, 20 historical events that all coincide with eclipses. And just like the further you get down that list, the more and more their jaw drops. And then mm -hmm. it's just like, mm -hmm. wow, like maybe because then I feel like it's one of those things because you can convey it so easily that it could be one of those things where somebody's ears could perk up and they could really be like, maybe there is something to astrology. Maybe that's something I could, I should look into more. Mm -hmm. Whereas sometimes maybe it's harder to make that case, even though I always think transits is the most compelling piece of astrology. Sometimes it's hard to tell a person like, well, you just need to watch your transits over like a five-year period and then like you'll see how astrology <laughs> works and how interesting it is. It's but, true. It's like, hey, casual skeptic, have you ever just tried meticulously studying your natal chart and transits yeah. to it for five years? Then you'll know. <laughs> well, yeah. And they're like, no, why would I do that? Yeah. And like, well, because it's it works. And they're like, mm -hmm. no, it doesn't. No, no. Um, yeah. So eclipses could be a good breakthrough in between stage. We got some of those are going viral on TikTok and stuff. So that's yeah. fun true yeah especially i think when i mean not to be like hammering in the um i guess the potentially malefic nature of eclipses but when we do look at maybe those ancient associations where eclipses are more chaotic in nature as compared to perhaps sometimes the modern take where they might interpret eclipses as just a like a supercharged new moon or full moon i think it helps understand the nature of eclipses when we do look at them as something that's maybe beyond your control or beyond your best efforts to try to manifest something you know fortunate in your life something that you just kind of hang back and you know see what the gods are what kind of ride they're taking you along for at that point in your life yeah for sure and that's been a famous tension on the podcast over the years because i always have leaned more towards the more modern interpretation of eclipses which i still think is valid but i'm coming to understand that sometimes you know, my keyword's always been great beginnings and great endings, mm -hmm. but sometimes like the, you know, the greatest ending that you can have to something is like the end of a life cycle of something. Yeah. And that can be when you're experiencing it, a very devastating negative event, even if in the long term, like positive things come out of it. So I'm starting to understand finally the sort of bridge between those two of the, the ancient, more malefic view and the, the modern sort of more positive or at least cyclical view. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense. And it kind of goes into maybe a take that I'm interested in discussing about maleficence in general, which is that we tend to look at malefic events as sort of isolated, like, oh no, a tragedy happened, you know, for instance, but every tragedy or every loss is often you know, paired with a, a beginning. You know, what do you do after the wake of a, a great ending in your life? Some other chapter begins. And so even if something in the chart or in the transits is on the surface or at the time experienced as malefic, it could still have like, oh, well, in the end, I needed to leave that person or I needed to leave that place. I needed to end that job, whatever the thing is that's dying yeah, it can be sad at the time, but then eventually be you know, reflected upon as something beneficial in the long run. Yeah, or at least it can act as like a catalyst for change to like push you in a direction you wouldn't have gone otherwise. And there can True. be positive things that, that grow out of even the sometimes very devastating events. Yeah, absolutely. 
and I guess while still like holding space for the mourning of the loss of whatever that thing is, um, recognizing that, yeah, you might be, like you're saying, kind of catalyzed, propelled towards something, something different, um, which could end up being something fortuitous in, in your life. Right, for sure. Um, so that was kind of connected with a couple of the topics that you wanted to mention today, right? Like there was one about benefics and malefics and one about mundane astrology or one about, um, you said something Patrick and I had mentioned about like something happens, but you just don't know yet or, or that it's not clear. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, yeah. in your casual chat with Patrick, just talking about how transits aren't always obvious to you, you know, and especially because there's so many happening all the time, the mundane transits, your personal transits. Um, and you can't possibly really keep track of all of the data at once. Um, you know, maybe if you're living in some kind of Neptunian space uh, where you can take in, just see metaphors everywhere all the time. Um, but I like the point that you brought up with Patrick where, or I guess Patrick, had, not to keep referencing him, but <laughs> he had mentioned that there was an eclipse in his fifth house and he didn't notice anything super obvious at the moment but then later realized that like his future stepchild had been born at that time and it was a fifth house eclipse and so something monumental might have happened related to the fifth house but it didn't come to be a, you know in his conscious awareness until later yeah that's huge i mean that's something i've studied really extensively over the years because there's many different techniques because astrology encompasses both the things that are within your field of vision, but also the things that are not within your field of vision that still affect you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most important thing. So that sometimes there's techniques that are telling you something really important that's going to affect your life is happening right now, but you just may not be aware of it yet. Um, mm -hmm. Or it may be setting a, a ball in motion that will come into your field of view years later once it becomes more clear or more important to you. That's true. And then the, I guess the way that you prioritize um, transits as well, like using Time Lord techniques to identify which you know, which planets are going to be the loudest or like the biggest manifestations of significant personal experiences versus which transits or which planets might have something just kind of like small and silly to say. Right, for yeah. sure. I was thinking yesterday, um, I was in Phoenix with my friend, Nishalder um, Sarah Deal, and we were just like we were having a spa day, getting facials. And she looked at the chart of the moment and lamented that Venus was not yet in Libra you know, for like, oh, like a beauty related treatment thing. And I said, well, I mean, Venus in Virgo feels also like a, a spa kind of situation. It's related to health and such. And I noticed while I was receiving the facial that the clinician was giving me this like scientific data about the nature of antioxidants being applied to the skin and how it can heal the body of like free radicals or cells that are like losing an electron or are chemically imbalanced and i thought oh that's so fascinating i'm really happy to be learning the science behind this beauty treatment and she went yeah that's that was the most exciting for thing for me to learn in you know aesthetician training as well and then I thought to myself, I wonder if this is, what if she has Venus in Virgo? <laughs> this feels like a very Venus in Virgo moment right now, learning the science behind the beauty. Yeah. It's like, like a that. cute little signification like that could occur as a simple manifestation of a transit. Yeah, for sure. That And that sometimes that happens with personal transits too. Like you may have a difficult looking transit come and then you like 
you know, cut yourself or you stub your toe or something mm -hmm. and it's more limited in scope versus having similar transit, but having it activate as a time Lord. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you lose your job or, or there's a loss of a loved one or something like that. Like mm -hmm. the full range of things is, is there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's always, it's one of those things like, I mean, I guess whenever I consult with say like our customers who are wanting to know how to synthesize or streamline all the data that's available about personal transits let's tell them like you know start with a particular time lord just follow only transits to that planet or from that planet or just start with your ascendant ruler just in terms of so that you can manage i guess like the insane amount of data that astrologers can potentially be trying to analyze or track at any given time yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit and maybe introduce you more to the uh, my audience is yeah. not familiar with you. So you are uh, the owner of the company, the Honeycomb Collective, that makes the Honeycomb Collective Almanacs that we've we've promoted over the years here on the podcast and, and that has been a sponsor on the show. And um, I, one of the things I really love about the almanacs is that they're personalized instead of being generalized, like most astrological almanacs have been up until recently where you go in and buy one and it's just like gives you the data of the astrology for the year but it doesn't necessarily connect it to your birth chart whereas in your approach you found a way to, to computerize things to create individual printed almanacs for individuals um, that actually tells them their personal transits yeah exactly and something that will be i mean i guess the idea is that sure you can generate a report you know using software to get that similar data but just when you're out in the field taking notes about your life, uh, it's so much more convenient and sometimes more pleasant or even easier to do a bit of a reflection process if you have something physically like a notebook in front of you. Um, at least I, I find that just it helps me to do more, I think, deep thinking if I'm working with an analog device versus a digital device. So, yeah, we found that that would potentially be a useful uh, tool for other astrologers. Um, that was literally at, at the time that we came up with the idea, I was bullet journaling and just like doing the thing where you meticulously go through an ephemeris and, you know, for each day, just try to calculate which planets are in aspect to your natal transits and then write them all out by hand. And as any person with Virgo placements knows, while that's a fun process, it takes a long time to complete and that's time that you could be using to synthesize the data rather than just um you know, record it yeah well that and that's such a, a crucial stage like early on in everybody's studies where you just like obsessively observe and note what happens during like every transit that you have every day over mm -hmm. a long period of time because that's really when astrology comes alive and you learn it probably the best that way by applying it and seeing it work in your personal life absolutely and you kind of i feel like you get the um, Oh, you get the astrology fever, you get the magic where you, I guess the world starts to feel a bit more enchanted in that way because you're almost playing a game with yourself where you're like, spot the archetype. What happened to me today that I can um, correlate with the just the archetypal symbols that are coming through or what might happen to me tomorrow or this coming week or this month, this year. So there's a way in which, that, I mean, I guess ideally, as a person with a lot of fifth house placements, I'm like, the more we can gamify life or the study of astrology, the better. Yeah, well, and and it sets up an expectation of that you 
you do the calculations or you, you get an almanac and you see what the transits are that are coming and then you formulate an idea of what you think that means or should manifest in, in your life based on your understanding of astrology and then you actually get there and you experience that day or that week or that month and you see how it actually works out mm-hmm. and how it either fit your expectation or how it, your expectation was off and needs to be modified. But it's such a great learning experience that that really is the core of learning astrology in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And that just with our product, I mean, like it doesn't contain any interpretations. Um, unless you add the Hellenistic plug in, you'll get a little bit of a like planetary condition analysis, which could be considered interpretive. But other than that, it's up to the user to decide whatever methodology they're wanting to focus on, whatever astrological technique or tradition they're studying, and to do their own and just use it as a study tool, really, rather than as a, um, like, I guess, a, a predictive tool that's already been written by someone else that is telling you what to think. You can practice you know, speaking the language of astrology yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really important. And so, like, visualizing, and one of the things you've done that's really unique is I think the visualization and the graphic design of how to visualize transits and the chart and things like that has also been pretty important to you. Yeah, yeah. I come from a background as like a communications information designer, um, and I really enjoy just taking like abstract, maybe scientific data, or communications data, and finding how to make it simpler, more digestible. Um, especially, I think for the goal of just teaching or helping people learn. So that's something that you know in the coming years I'd like to spend more time on as well is just developing even more tools that can help people you know all of the people who are getting into astrology help them kind of onboard more quickly I guess mm, that makes sense yeah, yeah that w- that's a nice goal I like that how to onboard more quickly mm-hmm. and effectively because I think that is one of the things newer students are running into is an issue is just there's you know back in back in my day as as the older people <laughs> say um, you know, there were so few resources that everybody tended to draw on the same ones. And then there would be, you know, different variations within that um, that people would take, but everybody would start in the same place essentially with like the same like five or 10 books and like mm-hmm. websites. But nowadays, there's such a vast array of different like websites and like social media sources and and traditions and approaches and everything else that people are kind of overwhelmed and seem to struggle with like where to start or how to how to learn astrology um and what to focus in on yeah and it's understandable because it it, yeah it was one of those major hurdles i remember as i was starting to learn astrology it was even just pinpointing like wait which which astrology is the true astrology you know as if there has to be an absolute truth like a most correct version of astrology or most correct house system or you know etc um so coming to realize and accept that there is variance across cultures or across time periods across teachers across schools of thoughts and then deciding for yourself um or just deciding according to whatever material is locally available to you or digitally available like how you will begin your studies or at what point you might expand to trying to conceptualize all of the you know possible different schools of thoughts i think is interesting um and i'm pretty passionate at this point in time about i guess helping create more tools that can onboard people with hellenistic astrology just because the the way in which the theoretical rationale for you know the planetary significations and the aspects and 
um, the like sign-based aspects, I think helps a lot when people are just starting to learn rather than having to memorize a bunch of seemingly incoherent archetypal symbols and house topics. There's more of it, you know, in my opinion, as a, <laughs> as a critic, <laughs> there's a, that inherent structure that I think can help people learn astrology faster. Yeah, for sure. It helps to have that structure and this simplification and then to get into greater complexity rather than to start with just the huge amount of complexity of of modern astrology and then try to go backwards, um, even though that's how I started. Mm -hmm. um, and there can be something interesting about that and pros and cons, whatever direction you take. But totally. Yeah, there's something helpful about the structure of Hellenistic astrology I've always found. And that's you know, that's one of the things like I keep, I've come to a new place recently where people, I kind of revise my like book list every few years. But right now, my current book list is like Chani's book is number one as mm -hmm. my primary recommended book for beginners. And then it's like, I think they can go from there to my book and just like get right into Hellenistic astrology. Once you've had Chani's synthesis of modern and ancient as a primer, um, then you can get right into, into Hellenistic and then you can go forward in time into like modern astrology and learn um some of the different approaches and psychological astrology and things like that. Yeah, that's true. I I agree. Um Chani's book, what's it called? Astrology for Radical um, Self Acceptance. That's the subtitle, but the oh. title is um I'm sorry, Chani. <laughs> yeah. Just search Chani Nicholas. Um, it's readily available, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, it's, I'm not you, sure it's putting me on the spot, and now <laughs> no. I'm for, it's um, for yourself. Um, astrology for radical self acceptance. Yeah. Oh man, you're I'm killing sorry. me right now. I'm so sorry. Um, I did it to myself too. I was like, don't reference anything because yeah. you're too tired and you won't be able to remember it. Anyway, it's a good book. Yeah, yeah. ChaniNicholas.com. <laughs> so um, her app as well, I think, is probably the number one app that I would recommend for people who are trying to get a um, like a more informed or more well-rounded like natal chart analysis as a primer point because she'll actually include or her writers will include uh, say it's not just a translation of your sun sign it also includes aspects you know to your sun um, aspects to the other planets yeah so it's I a bit more nuanced yeah than your average um uh like synthesis for sure yeah i didn't um because i'm an android user and it hadn't been available it for years it was just iphone but now that it came out on android in august i've been like super impressed and excited about that the app you know is available to everybody now and and yeah how useful it is um as like the primary app that anybody that does like hellenistic and other stuff like we do would recommend as the as the main one mm -hmm. certainly for beginners learning to study their own natal chart i think if it gets to the point where you need to draw charts or you need to look up transits in advance or yeah keep a record of friends and families and you'll need to move on to something like time passages or you know astro gold etc yeah and getting professional software um yeah. you were born for this that was the title that's that it <laughs> thank you <laughs> like astrology and your birth <laughs> yeah planets in transit by Jenny necklace yeah. exactly that's it that's it <laughs> a uh, famous 1970s author exactly um yeah, at least we didn't do that <laughs> so like maybe we're thinking of astrology for yourself Demetri yeah, george's early of, 2000s yeah. book which i did want to add if you're um i love um astrology and theory and practice 
like a, a Demetra's latest textbook series. Yeah, for sure. They're becoming more like getting deeper into their Hellenistic studies. Yeah, for sure. It has, it goes into more detail in a bunch of areas like the solar phase cycle that I didn't get into, um, which kind of circles us almost back around, which is that I realized it's the, um, you know, because we're talking about like transits that you see manifest versus you don't. And like Hellenistic astrology had a way of distinguishing that, which is like planets under the beams are things that are hidden or not seen, and things that are not too close to the sun are the things that are visible. Um, but I think that's why eclipses often more than any other major thing often have that um, sense of like starting with small origins or, or little beginnings that aren't readily apparent at the time, because especially a solar eclipse is something that's um, you know, involving, um, you know, the moon coming under the beams of the sun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's stuff like, I'm just thinking of like personal examples of that, of just the major eclipses in life where you, you know, you might be able to tell that something new is beginning, but you don't know just exactly how huge or how, um, impactful it's going to become like the long lasting potential, as opposed to maybe like your average, your casual new moon where, um, Maybe it's just a smaller manifestation, I guess, not the demarcation of a huge new life chapter. Right, for sure, for sure. Um, all right, what are some of the other topics we meant to get into? Um, we were talking, or in our outline, was suggesting, I guess, some of the stuff around us, like, what's it like to work in astrology? Um, what are the possibilities for research in astrology in the coming years? Um why what does it mean about life in the universe that astrology is a thing let's start there because that was something nick and i almost touched on at the end of the last episode of the eclipses thing where we like started getting into it which just like what is the what are the implications of this even if you only stick with the eclipses part but obviously if you expand it what is the why, why is this working so like that especially with eclipses um you know why why do major world events why do major individual events coincide with like the movement of the planets so regularly and so so constantly seemingly yeah it's yeah it boggles the mind to kind of i guess to guess that there would be a few different schools of thought i guess that i've been considering one is um that perhaps the animistic worldview is the is a correct worldview which would be sort of the, I guess, the dominant or the maybe primordial beginnings of human spirituality is to um, just assume that we live in an in an enchanted universe, or that everything in nature, um, everything in the universe, is somehow alive or somehow resonant with the individual spirit. Something that I think Richard Tarnas mentions at the beginning of Cosmos and Psyche. That like the postmodern sense of self is very different than the ancient sense of self, how the self relates to the world around it, and whether or not the world is um, influenced by or responding to like the individual self. So yeah, so universe is alive is one of the possible conclusions or, or premises. Exactly. Yeah, that um, essentially that there's, I guess, no separation really between, say, like the observer and the observed or the you know, the as above, so below principle that just everything, I guess, is symbolic in nature. 
which sort of, I guess, becomes the reality as you study astrology. You notice that you could categorize just about everything as belonging to some you know, archetypal principle or ideal or planet. And so it would just, I guess this premise would be that the universe is just archetypally imbued with meaning and symbolism and you know, different human cultures at different times might create symbolic meaning that reflects their culture, their worldview, but the potential to find meaning in everything is just a, a, a component of reality. Yeah. That, um, one of the ancient views and one of the ones in different cultures actually, cause I did the, you know, I did more this year with Mesopotamian astrology. I did a couple episodes. I did one on Mayan astrology and now most recently with some of the eclipse stuff and then researching a little bit some of the different indigenous traditions surrounding eclipses. It does seem like there's an underlying thing in different parts of the world that are that's tied in with systems of divination, but just the notion that um, in nature there's that nature gives signs and omens of things that are either happening in the present or coming up in the future and that those signs can be read and if you you understand what information or what language is being conveyed that you may be able to know something about the future before it happens absolutely yeah and it seems as though like you know in our day and age we take for granted this idea that the universe is a like a cold dead place or that um outside of ourselves and our own minds we can't truly say that anything exists you know almost like this was it solipsism uh, however you say that word um, but in um, ancient cultures and even in modern cultures like probably up until the enlightenment or the scientific revolution that was not the case it was not taken for granted like the world was not thought of as an inherently uh, neutral or neutral place or a place devoid of um, personal meaning or emotional meaning or um, a, a place that might reflect one's own. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess that just <laughs> the idea that the universe is dead versus the universe is alive was kind of an interesting shift, I think, in um, maybe like Western culture in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, I think over the years I've started to realize that I think um, that's one of the biggest like philosophical differences and one of the biggest things that astrology represents that's different than the contemporary scientific and especially skeptical paradigm is that premise that you can see really quickly with when you're contrasting astrology with with it which often like astronomers will state very emphatically which is just like that um the universe is dead and more, but more specifically that that our lives are like meaningless and like purpose not meaningless but have no purpose or there is no grand scheme of things mm -hmm. um that that our lives are not embedded in a greater narrative or sequence of like meaning and purpose and that things like fate don't exist that the world is just like chaotic and life is chaotic and random and and purpose essentially meaningless except for the meaning that we sort of apply to it subjectively, mm -hmm. um, but that it has no otherwise objective meaning. Um, and I think astrology does present a really different worldview in its fundamental premise, because the fundamental premise that's inescapable from astrology is that like, for some reason, there's some things in our life that are fated or destined to occur from the moment of birth. 
And once you start seeing that, you see like your transits, you see how the birth chart describes some aspect of the life ahead of time. When you see major events like eclipses coincide with like some of the most important events in a person's life, um, where they truly find their destiny or their life's work or what have you, like you realize that concepts like destiny and meaning and purpose do exist um, out there in some sort of objective way. And I think that does present a much different worldview than we're used to most of the time with with some of the current paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in Western culture or, you know, even in American culture where there's such an emphasis on like individual freedom or individual, say, manifest, um, uh, like manifestation principles, I guess, um, which can be super interesting to study. But uh, I guess it it almost is. What am I trying to say? Um, <laughs> it's un-American <laughs> to believe in fate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's that makes sense in the sense that like ideas of freedom and liberation, ideas of free will get tied in with ideas of liberation and political um, autonomy and things like that, which we we view obviously as good because the opposite, which is like lack of freedom, lack of political autonomy is um, experienced pretty much universally by humans is something that's negative. Mm -hmm. um, and that is definitely one of the the hard sells about astrology sometimes is if you are you try to tell somebody that like all the bad things that are ever going to happen or did happen in your life are all were all predetermined or something like that, that automatically comes off as something people don't necessarily want to hear. Um, even if they would be open to the other side of that, which is like all of the good things and all of the best things in your life um, that have happened or will happen were, were destined to occur. If you use like a different term of destiny, we tend to have less negative connotations with that compared to terms like fate. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right that there is something there that culturally um, we struggle with a little bit, at least as far as I know, with like like American culture or what have you. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think of a couple of things. And one is that our, we know that like our culture is very averse to talking about death um, in a certain way, like maybe in a personal way where we don't have a lot of tools to process maybe personal tragedies. There's sort of an emphasis on, say, like positive psychology or optimistic outlooks um, almost at I mean, you could say because of how much um, the experience of negative emotions can affect your productivity as, you know, say, as a worker, um, or for whatever reason that this culture came about. But there, I feel as though there's a, um, yeah, almost like that fear, like the fear of perhaps like Saturn principles. Um, and there's this way in which when you look at fate, it has this very Saturnian uh, connotation to it, as though you can't you can't escape. You know, Saturn represents those things. I guess you really you can't escape your fate. You can't modify your fate. This is this is final. This is what is determined. Like you've been handed your lots have been cast, and so now it is your. You just have to live live it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it it shows a structure or framework of a person's life, but then it also would show certain like limits or limitations, and um, we naturally tend to strive a little bit against limitations or want to want to push the limits or yeah um, don't want to be inhibited by by anything. 
Right. Yeah. It's almost like that's our cultural ethos is the like the striving beyond the pushing, push the limits, push yourself personally, try to achieve personal greatness. And there's a lot of emphasis on the individual, I guess, again, to do that, to take that upon themselves, to take on that journey of manifesting their will in the world, like become a billionaire, become a self-made man. Um, That I think is so much more culturally emphasized here than it is say in other parts of the world where there's more of a a collectivist mindset like that you you know you're born into a family and you represent that family and you need to consider other people's circumstances or consider perhaps like yeah the limitations of your fate a bit more yeah i don't um I don't know enough about other cultures to speak on that in terms of like how other cultures can conceptualize things or if that's different because I do think there's just basic human principles that we all have to a certain extent in terms of liking freedom and liberation and and not liking to some extent like liberations or being oppressed or what have you and it mm-hmm. seems like that striving for freedom is a natural human quality um that everyone shares to a certain extent mm-hmm. um but yeah, so that is interesting, though, the positive and negative sides of that and how astrology comes in and um, some of the implications it has for our lives. Um, yeah, I am interested to see how people deal with that, for example, with the eclipses thing, if that's like their first introduction to astrology and like what implications they do draw from that. I mean, because that's the biggest thing is just like eclipses and other astronomical calculations are calculated you can calculate them like hundreds or thousands of years in advance like what transits going to occur on a certain day and there is something about that that's very um then almost like set in stone that that transit's going to happen at that time one way or another mm-hmm. yeah unless we blow up mars <laughs> right which is possible possible but there are some there's a movie like the time travel movie uh, about that where they blew up the moon at one point mm-hmm. which was not good. Not a good idea. No, no. not recommended. Not and great. I guess I just because I got kind of Saturnian with that whole conversation. I want to say that personally, I'm super comforted by the notion of fate. That um, that there is a certain element of predetermination to life because it you know it relieves the pressure to in in a certain way because if you're only uh, counting on yourself and your individual actions and your relative ability to make your uh, will become evident in the world around you. Um, it could be, you know, very disappointing if you're unable to do that. And there's a certain degree to which I think that you know the natal chart can kind of indicate whether or not, you know, like how strong is your son, or you know, et cetera, these types of things. To, um, I don't know, to give you just, I don't know, there's something about that. Like you see a lot of people struggling to try to accomplish something, and it's almost it can be comforting to say. You know, it's a struggle right now at this time, but at a different time, it will be less of a struggle. So chill out. You just bide your time a little bit. Sure. Yeah. There's definitely something to be said about the acceptance of that, of sometimes if you're going through a difficult time and the astrology being able to tell you a rough time frame for when um, it might end or when there might be a period that's different than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure, there's something helpful for that about that um i do think you know there may have been something over the past few centuries about modern astrology though and the um liberatory nature of that 
um, that was useful in pushing us forward a little bit because we certainly, even embrace in embracing fate, you still have to sometimes act as if you have the ability to do things because you don't always know 100% like what your exact limitations are. Mm -hmm. And even if you have a pretty good idea astrologically, um, it's important still sometimes to push the boundaries of that and to see how far you can go because you don't want to give in to fatalism, which is like the other side of things. Yeah, that's true. And you don't want to rule out, I guess, the possibility that there is a degree of free will in terms of that, in terms of you can't, it's it's pretty hard to exactly pinpoint how the archetypes will manifest. And that um, there's, you know, there's remediation techniques. And so does using some kind of remediation technique um, more or less mitigate <laughs> your fate in a way or skew it more towards the uh, benefic scale rather than the malefic? And that's interesting, I guess, as a potential topic to study further or yeah, to look into for perhaps for us in the modern era. How much yeah. can we kind of swing things one way or the other? Yeah, well, that was a really interesting thing about the Mesopotamian tradition of the eclipses, the idea that they had the substitute king ritual and they would be right. like, well, if the king, if it says the king's going to die, then let's like swap out the king for a month. And that the idea is that the symbolism has to manifest somehow but that we might be able to direct it or like redirect it in a way that's a little bit um better than what the worst case scenario could be for us subjectively and that is a really interesting idea and it would be interesting if that was something that they discovered back then that is still relevant that you can channel the energy or channel the significations if you um, are aware of them, and that does open up some interesting like possibilities. Mm, yeah, I'm still looking forward to that Hollywood blockbuster, <laughs> The Substitute King. Yeah, although I still want to uh, star in it, so it's like that's, that's, it's a package deal. It's like the movie, but also I have to be the the guy that is taken for the Substitute King ritual. But then through my like charm and just like dashing, uh, you know, good looks and everything will end up becoming the king at the end and staying king. So that's the, that's the plan. Yeah, we need to cast somebody as the original king who is like universally unlikable so that we know to root for the substitute king. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, I have some ideas, but I, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, not I'll, naming anything. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll work on that. I'll think about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, all right. Coming so, summer 2024. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's move on to some other areas, like other topics you had mentioned that we could talk about are things like innovation and research and astrology and what's possible in research now that wasn't at previous points in history. Totally. Um, so yeah, that's been a big topic recently where I was doing all this eclipse research. I was shocked because originally I, I thought about doing that episode last month um, and I thought at first like I could just like Google it and there would already be a ton of people that have looked at like eclipses in history that coincide with major events and there was like very little out there. Um, so that assumption was surprisingly foiled at the beginning, but then another assumption I made was that I could use like ChatGPT or AI and just like, you know, um, get it to spit out a list of like the top 10 events that coincided with eclipses in history. That was also quickly um, turned out not to be true because ChatGPT famously will just like come up with answers that are just like wildly wrong, but it will present them with absolute being sure of it as if that's like for sure and it turns out that it will just 
I tried to get around it. I tried to like give it the dates and then ask it like what dates correlated with it, but it still just kept messing up. So it's like it seems like we're on the cusp of a huge revolution in terms of astrological research, but it's not quite there yet. But we can kind of see it's like something that's on the horizon where we can almost touch it, but but it's still a little ways off. Yeah, I agree. It feels like I'm in, in the in the age of air, I guess, that we're in now, that it'll be one of those things that probably develops relatively quickly, especially with the the huge influx of people with, you know, various skill sets and backgrounds coming into astrology now. It's like the more diverse the ecosystem of people who are studying astrology, then yeah, obviously the more diverse skill sets that will be applied towards innovation. Yeah. And I guess the thing that I was particularly excited about and contemplating is the the fact that in the near future, we could potentially reference just like everyday people's charts uh, rather than you say just like celebrity charts that are recorded in Astro database. But because of all the people who are potentially recording personal data about their um, about their experiences, either their own natal interpretations or their um, their life events that correlate with you know, astrological timings, like how cool would it be to you know, if we all share, like if the astrological community shared a public database of our, our personal, just our personal notes, and then you could search for, you could have a much larger sample size, for instance, of how various transits manifest in very specific ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that's cool is we're definitely at a point where people's lives are or can be documented much more thoroughly than in the past absolutely including even you know there's people that are like vloggers or that are like documenting their life every day and therefore have just an amazing um sort of archive or database that you can draw on if you're trying to then study their life through the lens of astrology that would be much different compared to like trying to study somebody's life 100 years ago or what have you yeah it's just it's like a, a perfect storm for um I guess being able to get much more specific with predictions because of, again, just like the large sample size that might be possible, um, being able to pinpoint just exactly, you know, which, which angle or which type of ascendant sign, which placement of this planet correlates with this specific type of experience and the range of possible experiences associated with that planet. That's yeah, super cool to imagine. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was thinking about that recently and realizing I want to go back and like start writing. I started it years ago, but I didn't keep up with it. But just like writing down concisely every transit experience that I had. Um, and I was thinking about that again recently because especially with like the forecast episodes, we've built up such an archive over the years where we always do a forecast each month and then we spend the first hour or we spend the second hour sort of like looking at the future and looking at the transits coming up. And then a month later, we'll spend the first hour of the next episode going back and seeing how it turned out. And we've learned and compiled so much through that process that we sometimes then go back on and, and mention sort of randomly when it seems relevant. Um, but it would be nice to compile that more um, thoroughly as a, as a list of like, well, the last time you know, Mars squared Saturn, like this happened, or the time before that, this was the major event we were talking about, or what have you. Totally, yeah. Because at the moment, it's not very searchable to right. yeah to get that data. Um, you could like you know, put your podcast transcripts into some kind of database that would make them searchable. 
Right. But you're right. That's like, especially in the forecast episodes, like you all are discovering and documenting such amazing predictions, you know, like, like been referencing the kind of the famous year ahead forecast for 2020. And like, I still remember watching that and just laughing at Austin talking about, or like in a little break mentioning to Kelly, just like, so aside from hiding out in the bomb shelter, what are you going to be doing in 2020? Right. Yeah. And I'll reference that to like non-astrologer friends when they ask me, so what did astrologers say about 2020? It's like, well, a very famous um, astrologer in November 2019 asked another very famous astrologer, what, how would they be spending their time in the bomb shelter? Like, it seems pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, the most funny, famous line from that was that we were joking that we were like, there'll be no hugging in the third week of March of 2020. Was That's our... right. Kelly's just like, it's the anti-cuddle aspect when Mars comes in to Capricorn and sets everything off. Yeah. When we had that huge conjunction and just line up, classic lineup of planets of like Mars yeah. and Jupiter and Saturn and Pluto. Totally. That conjunction, I'm like, that conjunction was all on top of my ascendant in Capricorn. Mm. And I remember kind of looking ahead at that point for, uh, I guess it was actually mentioned in the first ever astrology uh, reading that I received, which was in 2017, early 2017. This astrologer was just like, oh, well, so <laughs> by early 2020, you'll, you'll know what you're doing. Mm. <laughs> like you'll, there'll be something kind of worldwide that um, is very familiar to you. And, kind of a tangent but th that ended up just correlating i guess with um uh, the rise of our business with with honeycomb as well as this very personal feeling i think because i'm born in late march so you know i was planning some things around like having my mom come out for my birthday at that time which had to be canceled um and sort of this very, I guess, like Capricorn rising realization that the entire world was experiencing what it's like to be Capricorn, mm. to feel as though like, oh, you don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. You need to prepare, stock up your supplies. Things are looking bleak. There's a lot of <laughs> kind of like overdoing this here. But yeah, if you're going to be um, kind of like a night chart Saturn, potentially seeing the entire world go through an experience like that, it felt like a very, um, just a very symbolic expression of, yeah, Saturn and Pluto in Capricorn in particular. Mm, yeah, maybe like the value of, of um, pessimism. Yeah, like yeah. Pessimism, like because some of the, it's like the, the people that were like doing the best during that time frame, ironically, were like the preppers, like the people that had been like stocking up, um, you know, their, um, their you know backup toilet paper or like whatever it was that suddenly became like a very scarce during that time that's so true yeah and then you think of even like the value of um being cautious and listening to an established voice of authority rather than being overly optimistic about say like how quickly the thing would pass and um again just sort of the like where do you how much do you value your personal freedom versus your responsibility to um, like the health of the collective, like all those themes were really coming up. Mm, like the yeah. more cautious you were, the more conservative you were in terms of how you would put, and I guess recognizing how much your own actions impacted the world around you. If you chose to be careless with, with masking or sanitizing, there was that heavy feeling that you might cause someone else's you know, 
misfortune or illness or even their death. And that all feels very like hilariously Capricornian to me. And constantly an analyzing one's actions for their potentially malefic um, outcomes. Right, for sure. Um, a funny, weird anecdote I discovered recently. I hadn't mentioned it. I don't know where to mention it, but um, you know, as part of doing all this eclipses research over the past month, I was trying to get different books that I had hadn't read before, just to do a literature review. And I got Celeste Teal's book, who was very early on, like one of my favorite authors. She retired and hasn't been around much, you know, the past decade. So I don't think people are as familiar with her name, but she was like a astrology writer in the 90s and 2000s, but she published a book through Llewellyn in 2006 on eclipses. And later in the book, there's like a chapter on the eclipses of 2020. Wow. She has like a, literally an entire chapter of this book of just like, these are some gnarly eclipses. Um, you know, watch out like for some stuff that's about to go down. And I was really impressed by that. And I was really surprised that more people hadn't like noticed or pointed out that she had, she had done that basically. Yeah, that is interesting. And the eclipses in 2020 where they, it was in the Gemini Sagittarius axis? Um, it was shifting from mm. the Capricorn Cancer ones mm. to, to Gemini and Sagittarius. Right, right. Because like January, December, January oh, was yeah. still the Capricorn Cancer ones. And then by the time you get to like June and stuff, we're starting to shift into the Gemini Sag ones. That makes sense. So I keep thinking about that time in terms of the Gemini Sagittarius axis of um, just, you know, misinformation and how how much that or i guess just like diversity of information you could say to be less political about it uh, how people were starting to really became apparent how much people live in different versions of reality based on whether they were i guess based on what what the internet was reflecting back to them because everybody gets their targeted results on the internet and so people would be like if they were looking for data about how useful vaccines are, they would find that. If they're looking for information about how harmful vaccines are, they would they would find that. Um, that was that just like really struck me as varied on the nose for, I guess the the power, the potential destructive power of the Gemini Sagittarius eclipses. Yeah, for sure, and just the the yeah the silos of information that people get in mm -hmm. and then kind of stay in once you're in one uh, mm -hmm. because it becomes self reinforcing. Exactly. Yeah, you start to think like, well, how could anyone possibly believe the you know the alternative to what I believe? Because everything that I'm watching on YouTube, everything that I'm looking up is confirming what I believe. Meanwhile, the yeah the person with the opposite belief system is having the same experience, you know, in reverse. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that with the Gemini, um, that shift in the eclipses. But anyway, yeah, that was crazy with Celestial. I'm sure there's like totally. other stuff out there. Yeah, I was trying to recall what, I guess, what the dates were for those. Um, yeah, the Capricorn Cancer Eclipses in early 2020. It Did it end in, up manifest in, around the January? Oh, yeah, no, it was like one of them was in late December and the other was like January 11th. And oh, like right at the conjunction of Saturn and Pluto. Yeah, so it amplified that right. conjunction and it amplified everything else going on in, in Cancer and Capricorn. And then that's right when like the World Health Organization started realizing what was happening and started making announcements about it was around that time. Right, and that ended up correlating pretty much precisely with the, with the Saturn-Pluto conjunction on... January 12th. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Uh, yeah. I see what you mean with those predictions. Yeah, for sure. So um, that was cool. So anyway, but um, astrological research, um, innovations. Um, what else? What are some other topics we meant to go into? Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, I've just been interested in astrological research as, again, kind of in part to address skepticism in, in regards to astrology, like among the scientific community. Were you skeptical um, when you got into astrology? How did you get into it? Yeah, I mean, I I had kind of always been familiar with sun sign astrology. Uh, my mother was super into that. And but I guess when I, I just received my first astrology reading as a as a gift from my sister. Um, okay. And I had never just hadn't had no clue you know, what was under the hood, <laughs> I guess is what it felt like. And realized how much maybe the even though I was, I was into like other kind of woo stuff or culturally fringe stuff. Does your sister either take credit for, or does she regret what she did? <laughs> yeah, I should ask her now. I think it's probably a bit of both. It's like the last. She's <laughs> like, if I have to do one more Thanksgiving, hearing about Mercury retrograde, like, <laughs> yeah. No, it was very sweet. She had. I was turning twenty nine that year, and she. I, I don't even know if she can remember how, but she had been oh, hearing right. about Saturn returns. Wow, okay. And so she thought like, oh, you're turning 29. That's like the Saturn return age. So this might be a good birthday present. Saturn and Sag? Saturn and Capricorn for okay. me. So okay. I caught it just before, um, you know, like a year before. Or Saturn would enter Capricorn later that year. So wow. it was very um, on the nose. There was Saturn in the first house native as well. Capricorn rising. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And with a bunch of other planets, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's um, Uranus at one degree, Saturn at two, Neptune at 10, and Mars at 23, and the Ascendant at 25. Okay. It's That's, a full house. <laughs> yeah. Not that many planets. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just a few. Just like, yeah. Yeah. If you wanted to have a lifetime where you got a very um, extreme <laughs> experience of what that Capricorn could be like, yeah, you might choose this one. Right, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Although well, there, I will say there are others. You know, the folks born in late, uh, like nineteen eighty nine, have it as well, where they'll be you know, all of the outer planets as well as the sun, and you know, there's this whole pile up. I think that was possible where if you're a sun in Capricorn as well as a Mercury right. as well as Saturn and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, which is yeah. I'll give so, them that. <laughs> so your Saturn returning, she got you a gift to see an astrologer, and then you was it a good reading? Yeah, yeah. It felt um like I think at the time, probably possibly in part because Saturn had been transiting my twelfth. Um, I had started to like go to therapy for the first time, and I've always been like casually interested in psychology, and um, was even considering like going back to school for psychology. And this astrology reading just really struck me as being able to identify very, all these various contradictory aspects of my personality, like the very, you know, like the, the seriousness or the, the intimidating qualities of the Capricorn rising, but at the same time, this like, like sunny optimism or good humor of the Leo moon um, and the, just, I guess the way that in particular that saturn uranus conjunction feels in my life is uh you know like one of the most confounding things because there's you know she just and she was a modern astrologer so she was really you know focusing in on perhaps uranus and 
you know, the dis- the disruptive, rebellious nature of Uranus, what that's like to combine with the um, like the limiting or the um, strict nature of Saturn. Was she the one that said 2020 would be big for you? Yeah. Okay, wow. So you got that like in your first reading. Yeah. It's just like, heads up. Just uh, a heads up. Yeah, you have a huge amount of plants in Capricorn, and there's about a huge amount of plants that are about to go through it there in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it felt very, it just, it was a very pivotal reading. Yeah, and it, mm-hmm. I didn't immediately start getting obsessed with astrology, but now that I think about it, it was witnessing that eclipse uh, that Leo eclipse in 2017 that lit, in, lit the in fire. February? It was in no, it was later on the one in August that um that crossed. Oh. It was visible. It was the visible eclipse Got it. that it was actually witnessing that eclipse that like lit my fire for like wait this is insane. I have to study astrology. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then I um googled in Portland Astrology School. <laughs> I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. Wow. So that's another, you know, humble origins. Like, yeah. you know, little did you know that that would end up being a big shift in your life? Absolutely. Yeah. So and I hadn't really thought about that until now, but it was, it was witnessing an eclipse with my own eyes in the sign of my, you know, sect light um, that <laughs> gave me the astrology bug. Mm, okay. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's more I could say, of course, about just like how cool Portland School of Astrology was. Like, very few people, I think, have the opportunity to study astrology in person with a group of people. And yeah. So I definitely value having had that experience. I don't know, you know to what extent what have I started to work in the field of astrology if I hadn't had it happen kind of in real life like that. Yeah, especially these days where everything's online. Um, you know, that was a really unique there's unique that they had like a physical location. Totally. Yeah. It gave me this sense of um, like, I'm not just a crazy person alone in my room, reading a bunch of textbooks. Uh, there are other crazy people <laughs> in the world right. reading a bunch of books and considering this to be a legitimate phenomenon. Yeah. That's a huge, cause usually people only have that experience when they go to the conferences and it's why conferences are so important um, because that's typically for most people, the only time that you get to have that experience actually in person, meeting other people that speak the same language. Um, so that is nice to have that much earlier on in your studies. Yeah. I think it's huge. And I think, I mean, just personally, I see it as a manifestation of having the midheaven degree in the 11th house. There's something about like just being among, you know, a group of people, um, that, just make it, I don't know, makes work more exciting for me or makes it more real in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is another fascinating topic to get into is just like, yeah, what are those variations between whether the midheaven falls on the 10th versus the 9th or the 11th or beyond that? Um, but yeah, no, I ended up meeting Colin at that school. Um, your, and, your partner? Yeah, yeah. And we started our, you know, just the idea that we wanted to collaborate on something. Uh, yeah, we eventually came up with honeycomb. We got married. We just like everything. Certainly a significant um, turning point in life. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Um, did you have like seventh house going on when you met? Um, not when we met, but at the time that we started dating, there um, had literally just been a, an eclipse in my seventh house and a seventh house perfection. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And like yeah. one relationship, one long relation, long-term relationship ended and a new one began very 
like around the same eclipse. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. But then of course you probably didn't think you didn't know right away that that would be like the one when you presumably, I guess, when you started dating initially with that eclipse happening or did, or did in you? In a way I kind of did. It's an okay. exalted Mars ascendant thing. Mm. <laughs> I had kind of identified like, um, yeah, no, this guy's the one at least for, um, I'm not saying what I, at least for, but just in, in this way in which we had very compatible, uh, like compatibilities in this like complementary way. So whereas instead of like a synastry chart where we have a lot of things lining up um, in terms of like conjunctions or trines, we have very like disparate charts where it's almost like, yeah, he handles all of the water and air signs and I handle all of the fire and earth signs. <laughs> And so there's this way in which us coming together enables both of us to like do more, it, like become more than the sum of our parts is kind of the feeling. Yeah. Um, so I think I had, being that we were both astrologers in astrology school, like I was familiar with his chart and had identified some things like even in terms of like, oh, his ascendant is conjunct my north node or his moon is conjunct my descendant. Um, so yeah, in my super Marsy way, I was just like, I think we're going <laughs> to, right? yeah, I'm going to make a move and I think it's going to be a, a long-term thing. Yeah. Well, that makes things easier if you're like in astrology school together and like his charts like up on the wall or whatever. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, you know, you have full consent to talk about it. And then, I mean, even just like, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but being in a relationship with another astrologer enables you to have very efficient, um, like conversations you know, mm -hmm. regarding emotions and expectations and like when you get into arguments you're you know you're both able to look at your calendar on the wall and just be like oh well yeah you're having a difficult transit right now i'm not that's why you're grumpy next time it'll be me having a difficult transit um and so on and just being able to understand like why you're you know if you're perceiving reality differently why that might be the case um, right yeah so i think it gives a relationship more potential for, I guess, like problem solving tools, conflict resolution tools. For sure. Yeah. Like a different angle to try to approach things sometimes that can help, help deescalate things. Yeah, exactly. To give you a way of, yeah, like depersonalizing, I guess, conflict when it does occur, because you can just talk in terms of each other's planets. So it's, it's like one level removed from you're not accusing each other of anything necessarily you're just like look when you're ruled by jupiter and i'm ruled by saturn <laughs> these sure. are the kinds of disagreements that we might have although there's certainly like times when it's like inappropriate to like start talking about a person's chart if you're like arguing arguing instead of just like focusing on the matter of at hand like i almost yeah absolutely like, want to write like a guidebook a handbook at some point for like astrologers dating astrologers and like what are what is appropriate or what's like not appropriate like that's that's true yeah i feel like it would really vary based on the the person too you know sure <laughs> in certain ways like i might yeah i might particularly enjoy it because i don't know of mercury and pisces so almost like analyzing emotions is um, like would welcome it 
Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely really good and helpful things. I guess I just think I'm thinking about like a, a, there's certainly got to be like scenarios where people are in like a toxic relationship and somebody's weaponizing astrology. Yeah. I think that would be really hard. And I imagine that's probably hard sometimes. There's scenarios like that these days where there's like one partner that is an astrologer and then there's another that's like not or something like that and mm -hmm. different dynamics like that that could be a little, a little problematic. That's that's very true. And it's a, like a great. I don't know, segue to maybe even talk about the ethics of astrology, especially if you're in a position where you have more astrological knowledge um, than like another person in your life, whether it's in your family or in your partnerships or in your friendships. It's almost like there's this this great power that you need to be careful with. Um, yeah, just because you can potentially you maybe mis like misinterpret things or like you're saying, kind of weaponize things, or even just that you can potentially know the stuff that you shouldn't know about um, the other person's internal motivations and what have you. Sure. Yeah, that there's a responsibility that comes with that, and and just wanting to act like ethically, um, or in a way that's not going to make a person like distrust or like not like astrology if you if you weren't using it in a way that was like like good yeah yeah that's yeah almost like the duty of care to the the, the subject itself you're right um the find this comes up a lot if you're you say you're hanging out with people at a bar and they ask what you do and you're an astrologer and they go oh well tell me about yeah what can you tell me about my chart and there'll be this maybe like this lightness this light attitude that's there but now, uh, like, kind of jokingly, will warn people, like, well, just so you know, if you hand me over your birth data, you're giving me the keys to your soul. Like, there's a level of information that I'll know about you that you, you'd not, if you're not familiar with astrology, you don't even understand how much information I could potentially, like, derive or surmise from this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in some of those interactions, I get really tired at this stage of the like testing that there's like many people's yeah. imp impulses like let's test the astrologer, even sometimes friends um, over the years. And yeah, it's often tricky. Or I had like somebody that was like a barista once that was like really insistent on me making statements about their life or their personality was like or, or something like that and i didn't understand why at first and then later it turned out that they were a twin and so i realized in retrospect that they were trying to like test me because they had an underlying either dislike or suspicion of astrology because they were a twin and, and they didn't uh think that that worked or something or, or just assumed it, it precluded that being a true premise um, and we're sort of trying to put me in a in a spot over it, but um, yeah, that's an interesting thing that comes up with all astrologers at some point. It's just like the person that's skeptical and wants to like test the astrologer or something or or mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, it's true. It's almost like make the monkey do a dance, <laughs> right? And it's like it's not mm -hmm. actually that simple. Or or the guess, mm -hmm. like the guessing. That's the one. That's oh yeah, most, can you guess what sign I am? Yeah, tell me what sign I am. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, no, I don't actually specialize in that. I don't know anything about you mm -hmm. and. That's not really how it works necessarily, even though there might be some videos out there where somebody either specializes in that, because I, I assume mm -hmm. maybe maybe there are people that are really good at that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not usually something you do just like um, that most astrologers do or specialize in. Yeah, absolutely. 
I'll usually say to those people, like, I mean, if you talk to me for a few moments, I could probably tell you which planetary archetypes are prominent in your nature, you know, whether they come off as a very mercurial or very Saturnian person. Um, but that doesn't really have any meaning for them because that person won't know anything beyond their, you know, their sun sign. Um, so that's it. Yeah. Again, it's kind of a moot point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you may be picking up on something that like somebody has Mars conjunct the ascendant, but that may not represent like their sun sign or whatever. So it's like, mm -hmm. even if you're picking up something that's genuinely in their birth chart and is a prominent part of their personality or life, you may fail the test as they've established the parameters because all they know about astrology is like their sun sign. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the reasons that like tests like that are, are faulty and, and that it's not usually a good even to attempt that. Mm -hmm. um, but there might be like other ways that you could do a test that would be more effective and would be within the realm of, um, you know, what I ended up doing with the, one of the people like that actually once was to say, um, and it didn't end up working out because they ended up quitting before we did the test, but just to like give me two different, um, same birth date and like two different birth times with where one of them's like two hours either before or after the correct one. And then like if I get to know you and talk to you enough and learn about your life, I do think I should be able to tell the difference between what's the correct chart and what's not. Mm -hmm. Like that would be like a valid test that I think somebody could do um, or that I could do versus just like, you know, cold reading or not cold reading because that's not actually what astrologers do. But mm -hmm you know, just telling somebody about their life without knowing them or just based on appearance or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it comes from that misconception too, that astrology is some kind of divinatory practice rather than a, um, like a, just a process of gathering and analyzing data to a certain extent. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's tricky because a lot of astrologers these days do believe astrology is a divinatory true, true. Um, practice, yeah. so it depends on what you mean by that. But yeah, I suppose in terms of, like, and then this is true, I don't, I haven't studied, like, horary in particular, so I guess I can't really speak to that. Sure. Um, yeah, but I guess your, your point, though, is that there's an empirical, like, component to astrology. Exactly. Yeah, and I think about, um, I guess, like, something that you said in an episode where I think you were being interviewed by a different podcast just about astrology. Um, two guys who are curious about things and they go and, you know, find people to, mm -hmm. yeah, like teach them about it. Right. Yeah. And it was just this, like, just this fundamental premise that if astrology doesn't work, then it should never work. Like you should never be able to find any kind of correlation between celestial movements and, you know, earthly phenomenon or people's personality. And the fact that you can pretty readily find those correlations is is enough to prove the subject worthy of like further study, further analysis. Yeah, I mean, I guess the issue there is though you have to understand like what the indications are, and in like you have to understand astrology in order to see that it does actually correlate with personality. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of being able to read a chart, and that's the basic barrier is most skeptics or people that are, don't believe it never get to that point mm -hmm. of of knowing enough about it to actually test it. But I mean, that, that's what I'm excited about with some of the mundane work um, we've done in the, the forecast episodes and and some of the recent eclipse work is just that it's something more that's demonstrating that correlation without you needing to have much knowledge of like charts and everything else to understand it mm -hmm. of just like 
you know, this astrological alignment happened and then this event happened and this alignment happened and this event happened and just like, you know, really quickly outline a series of repetitions and correlations. And there was at least one person who was just like, well, you're just, um, you know, there's all sorts of different events happening constantly and you're just reaching for events or seeing things that aren't there. But it's like with that, the correlations happening so consistently and following in certain ranges of things that it just, um, you know, anybody that has that reaction to it, I just, I, there's not much you can say. Yeah, it's true. And it's like one of those things too, where you're looking at events that, like if we think of recent events, the events that are just like globally recognized as significant events mm. of that time period, you right. know, an event of say like the, um, you know, the war in Gaza, like, yeah, we could say, oh, we're just cherry picking a, an event that seems eclipsy, but it's like, you, you can't deny that that is now a, a very prominent news story. It's something that's in the cultural zeitgeist to a huge extent. So almost like those are the types of events that we see correlating with um, major events like eclipses. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, it is best when it's you're in the middle of things as an astrologer, because then everyone's wrapped up in the moment and can feel the cultural energy behind it and the charge and, and just, you know, in that instance, the the devastation, the tragedy, and the intensity of the images that are coming out, and just like seeing last month, as we all all the astrologers did at least, that eclipses were like really closely coinciding with that. Um, definitely does carry much more weight, in, you know, than if you were pointing out like a historical event that a person doesn't have as much like personal connection with. Mm -hmm. That's true, and it's a good point too as well. What you're saying with like people who tend to, or skeptics who try to research astrology or to disprove astrology through scientific research are frequently just measuring uh, sun signs and like what can be, who believes in sun sign astrology and what can be like, can you find um, statistical correlations based on a person's sun sign? And you, if, if a scientist was an astrologer or was well-versed in natal astrology they would not design an experiment like that you know they would test a much more uh, specific type of variable sure yeah. yeah yeah i mean personality is something that's very difficult to quantify mm -hmm. even if there's like attempts to with like they'll do personality index tests of different sorts or like things like that but mm -hmm. it's a very squishy thing versus concrete events, either in a person's life or in terms of world events, there's something there that's much more tangible mm -hmm. um, and probably more appropriate when you're trying to sort of test or see the validity of, of something and see if it's working in action. Yeah, absolutely. And it's another great point, I guess, about the difference between or like what's possible if you look at psychological astrology versus um, sort of either mundane astrology or an astrology that is more predictive of life events in the native um, because it, it can be much more striking rather than I think sometimes with the modern psychological astrology, like it's it's useful and it's valid, but um, it feels so much more subjective. And so it could lend itself to more skepticism rather than just the study of literal events along with the celestial correlations. Yeah, for sure, because that's it's like personality stuff and and connecting astrology with personality and seeing it work sometimes or when a person's going through intense internal psychological changes that can be really striking when you 
are paying attention to the astrology correlating with that, but it's a much more subjective experience versus um, you know, worldwide events or, or disasters or tragedies or things like that. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we were talking about was how does a person predict the types of events that they might personally experience during a mundane transit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, because that is a tricky thing, because that's something I actually stayed away from for many years because I learned astrology originally by studying my transits. I understood that the primary way to experience transits is as they relate to your birth chart personally, and that it's only when you have a a planetary transit that exactly aligns with your birth chart that you're going to experience an event that's personally relevant for you. And therefore, for many years, I would avoid doing like more general forecasts where you're talking about like the astrological weather in general, um, because it wouldn't necessarily connect with the individual. Um, but over the past, what is it, like eight years now that I've been doing the forecast episodes, I've come to understand how the mundane transits and describing those can actually be relevant as part of the the more collective like energies that we're experiencing at, at any given time. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think what, in addition to just focusing generally on the mundane topics, which makes a lot of sense for a general forecast, when it comes to the individual, it's their job to pay attention to the things that are most significant for their natal chart and focus in on the mundane transits in regards to that. Like sort of, I was alluding to earlier that if someone does something as simple as identifying the ruling planet of their natal chart or the of the ascendant rather, then and then specifically pays attention to the transits of that planet, I think they're more likely to see the timing of significant personal events in their life following your relevant transits. Um, so, you know, for instance, if you're ruled by Saturn like we are, you can potentially notice a like a big shift in life area focus every time, you know, every few years when Saturn moves signs, ingresses a new sign because it doesn't do that very often. So for a Saturn-ruled native, looking at planetary ingresses is is huge in that regards. Um, whereas for, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're a Cancer rising and your ascendant ruler is the moon, then there's something inherent to the nature of Cancer rising being ruled by the moon and how frequently the moon ingresses the various signs that could potentially speak to what it's like to experience life as a as a cancer rising and then to track potentially the lunations as a as a more like dominant or pervasive experience in their life sure yeah yeah for sure um definitely signatures that a person has in the birth chart when those recur in the future um that can be more personally relevant to a person if it's built in mm-hmm. um yeah but that's a good point that it's it, there's some sort of middle ground between looking at the mundane transits and your natal transits and that certainly a mundane transit that's happening in the sky will tend to be more personally relevant for you um if it's also hitting your your birth chart in a particular personal way mm-hmm. um but that sometimes when you're dealing with like major worldwide events um even if it's not hitting your birth chart personally, you can still sometimes get swept up in things or can uh, experience on even some low level the the energy that's happening at the time um, in the world at the time. Like, for example, with the eclipses we were experiencing last month. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm thinking even in terms of just like as, for instance, as Saturn is moving through Pisces, uh, you're sort of noticing, or I'm noticing in the people around me, they it, like they're they're feeling more of I guess maybe like the sadness or the sorrow, the collective sorrow that Saturn and Pisces might um, represent. Um, maybe that that general feeling that um, you know there oh, there's there there are tragedies going on in the world constantly, or what is you know wh where do we go from here? Right, like empathy, like themes of like empathy or peace, and mm -hmm. sometimes hopelessness surrounding those things mm -hmm. that there's a lack of empathy in the world or a lack of peace compared to like you know 2020 when everything was in capricorn and all of a sudden um you know there's like lockdowns and everyone's having this like collective experience of being stuck inside and being like restricted from doing the normal things that they do mm -hmm. and so that we're all like collectively experiencing something some energy together broadly speaking mm -hmm. um even if individuals like you know there's some people that like lost their businesses during that time if the transits were hitting their charts really poorly or or for me i lost my health during the time because it was hitting my chart poorly but there's other you know there's like billionaires that became or millionaires that became billionaires at that time because they like invested wisely or what have you yeah exactly um, just depending on how those transits are hitting yeah, the like the subjective experience of the native might vary, you know, more or less in terms of like more enjoyable or less enjoyable from the collective experience, right? Depending on the other chart factors, right? Yeah, which could be like the houses that the transit is occurring in, or the the position of say the lord of that house in the natal chart. You know, if which is something I think been enjoying reading through volume two of um Demetra's ancient astrology and theory and practice where she's particularly focusing on the condition of the houses in the chart and just just kind of that general take on based on the condition of the ruler of the house or the other planets in the houses we, how might a native tend to experience is sort of like anything occurring in that particular house mm -hmm. and so that could show even the nuance you know between people who might have otherwise say they're the same rising sign, but then the configuration of the rulers of their various houses is going to portend um, you know, variance in the experience of those house topics. Right, for sure. Yeah, and there's so much variation, and it's always interesting seeing the amount of variation that you can have in certain house topics, but then it's also interesting seeing the repetitions of like when you've seen something in the past of how a person has experienced a certain transit or placement and then and then you see that again in the future with like other people um that's an interesting tension in astrology the the regularity of the meaning of certain placements but also the wide range of possible manifestations because you're dealing with archetypes mm -hmm. yeah it's true that's one that's that's just making me think again about like why astrology is complex in terms of um i guess Proving its, I guess, proving its validity or using it as um, designing experiments involving astrology because just like the amount of variables across right. charts is uh, highly complex. Whereas other, um, say, other personality inventories are you know, much simpler, for instance. You know, Colin, sure. yeah, let's say Colin got into a like a long conversation with ChatGPT recently. Um, like breaking down, like I guess trying to understand why this 
anti-astrology bias was built into you know, ChatGPT. Yeah, um, in a way, it's sort of gone through different periods because I feel like at the beginning it wasn't too bad, but then mm -hmm. it seems like they've adjusted it more lately. It seems like yeah, it's like it will it will have a conversation with you about astrology. It will even interpret um, placements for you, but at at the end of everything that it says, it would always say, but. So, you know, astrology is considered a pseudoscience. It's like anything that is taken from this should be used for entertainment purposes only. It's like it had to include a disclaimer every single time. Mm -hmm. And he had this long conversation of sort of like, we talk about like how we might design experiments that could prove astrology or how it might be just as subjective as any other or, or how the other personality inventories that are popularly used in psychology might be just as, um, I guess, prone to some of the potential issues that astrology could be prone to. And in the end, it was just like the problem that ChatGPT was identifying was that astrology was potentially too complex to study or to experiment with, um, which was kind of an interesting conclusion. So it's like, well, it's not if you do try to just isolate a single variable that you're trying to study. Well, I mean that's a good point. Although that's true, though, because you no no variable does ever exist in isolation. Yeah. And so that's one of the problems is that like one exact charts don't repeat, even mm -hmm. though you can have a repetition of individual factors. The number of actual like astronomical factors involved, even in just like a basic chart of like let's say nine or ten planets. Um, that are all moving at different speeds, going through different signs. Like you really don't have an exact repetition of a chart ever in any reasonable time frames, which creates an issue in terms of um, replication. If you're if you're trying to do like a, a true like scientific study, yeah, it, that's a great point. But it's like I guess the other point that they landed on was um, that the AI was acknowledging that. Um, you know, these other personality inventories are so like they're presenting a very limited range of archetypes, almost like sun sign astrology, as if like say Myers Briggs just saying there's these certain numbers of um, personalities and they're the only personalities that exist. But it's a you know it's a pretty small number. Like um, I can't remember the exact number. Um, so it's sort of acknowledging that if you if you did have a system that could truly um, I guess could truly exemplify the complexity of, and the variance of human nature and of human psychology. It would have to have a, like a huge amount of variables in it, like astrology does, and that really, um, yeah, just almost like that. That makes it more credible in a way of being able to predict the human nature or being able to describe human nature. But it does, like as we're saying, present some challenges when it comes to yeah, truly being able to yeah, isolate things well enough to, I guess, to scientifically study them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Isolating stuff is really tricky, but that's something scientifically that they would want to do is controlling your variables and stuff like that, having, mm -hmm. having controls. Um, yeah. But it's, it's really tricky for a number of different reasons. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, future problems for future research. 
Yeah. Well, there's some people that really get into that. And, you know, I know somebody that's trying to do that right now, actually, and is trying to set up a a test to to try to repeat some of the tests that happened in like the 1980s that were some of the closest tests that did relatively well for astrologers Mm -hmm. um, were like attempting, I think, to like match charts to people. And that's like one of the tests that kind of makes the most sense to me is a test like that Mm -hmm. or a test of a rectification test like I mentioned earlier of like can you tell the difference between which is the correct chart between two different people or or something like that yeah true yeah Yeah. Colin was positing a test that could be as simple as like take a personality variant like um, say from the big five personality inventory such as neuroticism and then identify a simple chart placement that might correlate with a high rating in terms of neuroticism and see whether or not with a like a large sample size you could just ascertain a correlation between a potentially neurotic chart placement and then a a score in a you know in one of these other um, like scientifically proven personality inventories yeah just as some kind of way of showing like look you shouldn't be able to see any statistically relevant correlation but if you do then uh, that's that's interesting yeah i mean one of the issues i always have with the scientific tests that have been done up to this point the statistical ones is they tend to not replicate what astrologers actually do and i think that's one of the things that's so important is if we were going to test it to try to test it in the context as close as possible to how it's normally done and oftentimes that involves like a consultation mm-hmm. where you're able to take all the variables into account and the sometimes attempt to like strip astrology down and get rid of all the variables, even though that's how most scientific tests are done in order to control things and control for variables, which I understand mm-hmm. that that may be a, in a way antithetical to the nature of astrology because it may not be something that can be fully stripped of context and variables and things like that. Yeah, that's um, a good point. It makes you wonder just like how complex would the particular variable need to be? Like, do you have a planet in this sign with this aspect on this angle? Uh, for instance, and can you draw a find a statistical conclusion at that point? And that again, I think goes back to my point about how valuable it would be to be able to find large sample sizes of of people whose charts are available so that you could potentially find enough people with a very specific type of um, uh, chart configuration. Yeah. I mean, this goes back, there's like a lot of stuff that happened in the 80s and 90s surrounding this with like the Gokulin tests and different things like that and the outcomes of that Mm -hmm. about that's what astrologers were trying to do for a few decades was work like that. Um, but there was just some issues that were run into that gets to the nature of like what astrology is and, and if that sort of approach is possible and, and is feasible. Um, yeah, but that's really tricky. I mean, but there are, there are mm-hmm. a lot of variables for any one placement. I mean, if we're even just talking about like, let's list them, like let's mm-hmm. talk about Mercury placements. We're talking about Mercury. Mercury's in a sign, so a sign of the zodiac, one out of 12. Um, Mercury's in a house, one out of 12. Um, Mercury has um, the sect. It's in a day chart or a night chart, so an A or B. Um, what else? There's like. Uh, Is it the ruler of an angle? If so, which angle? Well, yeah, ruler yeah. of a house. So, ruler what, what house. houses is it ruling? 
Is it close to an angle? Is it angular or is it not angular? Mm -hmm. The aspects, mm -hmm. like yeah, is it under the beams or combust? Right. Yeah. Um, is it retrograde or direct? Is it moving fast or slow? Mm -hmm. um, Even in terms of sect, like if it's of the day sect, is it rising before or after the sun? Because um, that could tell, yeah, tell you whether it's contrary to the sect or belonging to the sect. Right, yeah. and you know the aspects thing is a huge one and of itself because yeah. even if you limit it to the visible planets you're talking about um six other planets that could have um up to five major types of configurations um if you add in the aversions you're talking about six different types of configurations of either having a an aspect from another planet or not and then you're like multiplying that by like six other planets. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like already here, we've got like a ton of variables and that's not even all the variables. Absolutely. Um, but then the tendency sometimes with the statistical test is to try to remove all of those variables and focus on one. And there's just, there's something about that that may um, not work for what astrology is and that was one of the fundamental issues i think astrologers that were trying to do scientific tests ran into in the early 90s and it was causing some people to go in different directions like michelle goklin who was doing a lot of those tests that were the most successful where he was isolating stuff you know he ended up then arguing that we needed to create a what he called a neo astrology where we strip astrology of anything that hasn't been validated scientifically and we build it up again just based on only that can be, that can be demonstrated statistically. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different history there and different ways people have gone with that. Yeah, and it's really interesting to I guess to take into consideration. Yeah, what is the history of attempting to do this type of research? And yeah, is it even possible? Um, as I guess another just as a variation on the research theme, I've been considering whether it'd be worthwhile to just look at like aside from proving like the statistical um reality or validity of astrology just is astrology a useful model in terms of a therapeutic context and then if so like i guess what types of astrology are most useful or how could a i guess because i was thinking about the recent episode where you had a a psychotherapist i can't remember her name but she's a psychotherapist who is also an astrologer and she talks about like how and when she might use astrology in a therapeutic context, sort of like what the ethics are of that, um, when it could be more or less helpful for a client. And so I guess it'd be interesting to even just see that as maybe a, an increase in the number of therapists who are able to incorporate astrology into their practice and whether or not that would be useful to, um, yeah, I guess as a more accepted thing um in that way sure yeah i mean accepted is a there's a sort of question mark then i mean accepted in terms of there's there probably are more therapists these days that know about astrology or might use it you know privately to some extent but it wouldn't be something in a medical context that would be okay in most instances for them to do is in terms of licensing and things like that yeah um which brings up, yeah, like kind of in the issue of, of we've talked about of like running into issues at some point just in terms of astrology and how popular it's gotten. And at one point that elicits certain, um, some degree of like pushback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's true because it's i think you notice it being categorized in terms of like other conspiracy theories or um you know by people who are um in the scientific community seeing the popularity of astrology as like a cursor of the downfall of um you know, the lack of critical thinking in uh in culture at large um, yeah just like assuming that you know anybody who's enthusiastic about astrology is either desperate for some kind of sense of meaning and purpose in their lives or is um you know is an idiot or whatever is uneducated and it's just hilarious when you when you look at like what astrology actually is like we're talking about the the complexity of it like the years of study that go into it and how different the reality is compared to um yeah what it, what the casual skeptic like what their notion of astrology is right yeah i actually saw something recently with the saturn station in pisces we talked about it in terms of the potential for pushback on astrology. There was mm -hmm. the the Pennsylvania law, but I actually did see something actually in the past week um, did happen. And I don't want to go into all the specifics, but it did make me very nervous because one of the things I saw is an avenue we hadn't we sort of talked about, and Austin had been nervous about, um, but that astrology getting pushback as a result of becoming politicized. And and that some of the politicization and activism surrounding astrology, um, roping it into and ended up accidentally potentially like getting it involved in um, political sort of arguments, mm -hmm. and that's something that does make me very nervous because um, I hadn't thought too much about that as an angle for pushback to astrology, but I could see now how it how it could be in in some ways as a potential. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if you could elaborate on any of the like the political uh, nature of it, that's not quite sure I understand that piece. Um, I guess the biggest thing or the most generic way to phrase it is just that astrology, especially because of its um, embracing by a lot of younger astrologers over the past several years, past five years, especially since like 2017, um, and the tendency for more of the younger astrologers and young people in general, just demographically, to be more more liberal, um, that astrology um, may have become associated with some more liberal trends, which may make it the target at some point of mm -hmm. more conservative or, or right wing people if they start to associate astrology so much with the left that it becomes like one of those things that is just as a standard thing attacked as a feature of left-wing thinking or what have you mm -hmm. that would be really unfortunate um you know if it became like an issue like that uh, that became attacked for like political reasons yeah that makes sense i've been concerned about that myself just yeah if if yeah if astrologers become demonized to a certain extent in that way of um right-wing uh like extreme extremists or terrorists trying to choose some kind of group that they can target next i guess because you kind of see i mean even beyond the realm of extremists but yeah politicians trying to yeah make various things illegal like um like criminalizing um you know like drag performance as a way to sort of like demonize people on the left yeah you could easily see astrology being targeted in that similar way Right. And I don't actually even know how to fix that because then it's like, on the other hand, 
astrologers. Um, there's been a lot of interesting um, work that's been done in making astrology more open and updating it in um, making it so that, you know, even a few decades ago, things like, like um, homosexuality were still stigmatized in weird ways in astrological texts mm -hmm. and how a lot of that's been stripped out in different ways um, to be more inclusive in recent decades, which are, are, like, are like good things, you know, in my opinion. Um, so that, and, and astrologers always have a tendency, especially for um, things that are personal in terms of their personal political beliefs and things that they think are moral to want to pursue justice and just causes and to like astrologers always look at the world through the lens of astrology which includes their political beliefs and that's something that's actually important and 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 can be good um it's more just so it's not like we can stop doing that or astrologers should stop doing that it's just interesting if due to the circumstances um that ends up being one of the things that ends up being a point where astrology starts getting more pushback than it has previously. Mm, yeah, you can definitely see it going that way. Cause that's, I mean, I think it's becoming pretty common in like the queer community, for instance, to like for there to be a strong correlation with people who identify as queer and people who um, identify as being interested in astrology. So even as a simple, just one-to-one -one association like that, if there continues to be right wing, um, I guess like politicized hate or discrimination against the queer community astrology could fold in with that yeah and that actually was part of it um and i yeah i don't know we don't have to go into it now because i don't want to promote it yeah um, but yeah it's just something i'm thinking about recently and i was surprised that it came up on the saturn station i wasn't surprised i was like okay this is it um yeah, but yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the next several years since we're looking this is just the beginning of saturn and pisces and the build up to the saturn neptune conjunction um and then eventually neptune departing from pisces and moving into aries and saturn then joins it and moves into aries so we've got a whole like six-year period here that mm -hmm. we're only at the beginning of and it'll be curious to see how that goes, um, how it goes in terms of uh, skepticism in general, because the skeptic community has just been in disarray over the most of the past decade. But I can already see in terms of the attempts sometimes to fight like actual legitimate disinformation that is more prevalent in the world these days with social media and everything, how astrology could end up becoming an accidental sort of victim to that um, because it would be could be classified as a form of misinformation or disinformation or or not scientific and therefore wrong yeah it's interesting to consider i guess in that way of just like for ourselves as astrologers trying to assess like what what will we do like will will we go down with the ship <laughs> um or will it be well for some of us will it be unavoidable like if you're you know publicly known in the field um yeah, yeah, just kind of like how will you defend yourself if need be um, against maybe like ideological um, attacks or, you know, how will the community rally together to, I mean, it's taken a very, again, like a very a potentially dark note, but it's, it's worth considering because it does yeah. seem to be like, as you've been pointing out, historically, there are those resurgences of astrology and then sort of like the more or less authoritarian crackdown on astrology. Yeah, I mean, it goes through periods of 
being up for a while and then being suppressed and being persecuted. And yeah, that's something I'm actually seriously thinking about now, which is being careful about that because of those two dueling tensions of, on the one hand, wanting to push for um, progress, justice, um, social equality, all things that I, I view as positive um, moral things. But then at the same time, if the the tension then of drawing heat or ironically getting astrology um, blacklisted or something like that, um, yeah, it has me thinking recently because it's a tricky balance and, and therefore how to balance those things. Yeah. And it's a good point too, that it's just like for some astrologers, those like it's impossible to separate because their very identities have now been politicized. Like if they are a queer and an astrologer, they right. are BIPOC and an astrologer. They're just like my existence is already threatening to um, right wing politics potentially. So, you know, potentially uh, bring it on yes and i'm an astrologer yeah what else do you hate about me yeah yeah and that's a really important like viewpoint of just like my existence is not politics and like shouldn't be um i can't stop being political because my existence is threatened and mm -hmm. that's a really important viewpoint you know in the community to like rec recognize and defend and, and understand um yeah it's just going to be interesting to see how we navigate that especially like in this country over the next year, you know, this we're at like a super important turning point and it could go either way and it could go in a certain way next year that could be really um, not good for some groups of, of people. Um, and in terms of whether the democracy itself survives and we continue to have like a democratic process or if it gets sort of dismantled, um, that's some of the stuff, you know, like in the forecast for October, we really talked about the, we talked about um, the final, the third final, not third, but the, the final closest pass of the US Pluto return was happening. And it's like one of the things that we forgot to mention, I meant to mention in the last forecast episode was just like um, the House didn't have a representative for like three weeks, the speaker was fired. And then at the end of that, was elected a guy who was born on an eclipse and then he was elected on eclipse and he's now third in line for the presidency after Biden and Harris. And he's somebody that was very active in like kind of like denying the results of the last election. And if that's setting up pieces for um, you know, something that's going to happen next year, just in terms of how that election goes and um and if it threatens the potential to have like other elections in the future, if the results aren't accepted again or something like that. Yeah, it is it's wild to imagine. And it I mean it makes me think too about the upcoming uh Uranus and Gemini return for yeah. the US. How like we well, you know we'll finish this Pluto return, but then we immediately have this other very significant um recurrence potentially. Yeah, exactly. And just a history of that coinciding with like wars in this country. And mm -hmm. you know, the first Uranus and Gemini was like the Revolutionary War, the second was the Civil War, and the third was World War II. And it's like astrologers we've known for a long time that we're building up to something really important when that Uranus transit begins again in 2025. But now it's like with the state of like world events and stuff, we can just like see some of the different pieces are like falling into place. And way more than, you know, 10 years ago was the first time I did um, like a Uranus and Gemini episode with Nick. And we talked about this, but it was like 2013. 
And, <laughs> you know, things have changed a lot since then. We're in a much different place in the world and the, mm-hmm. the world's become both in terms of, of this country and some of the internal um, difficulties and, and struggles that have happened and the dissension, but also internationally now, um, things are becoming more and more tense in terms of different geopolitical things. Yeah, it's true. Let's, I mean, I've spent the past three years living in Australia and I'm just deep getting like that slightly, um, you know, it's a very similar culture to the United States, but, um, you know, and also different in ways. But one of the things that I've been noticing there is there's also the resurgence of um, right wing politics or, you know, right wing nationalism or white nationalism and almost like this, this way in which like, um, Britain and Australia and the U.S. are are connected, um, I guess, historically and culturally. Uh, that's similarly concerning just to see kind of white nationalism spread across um, across the world and how that could end up coinciding with. I mean, I guess because the United States is so influential in terms of like Western culture in this day and age, what happens here does end up reverberating around the world and people in other countries are constantly analyzing American politics like way more than we do you know the politics generally speaking of other nations and so I know exactly what I'm trying to say about that but it will it will be I think it will be huge whatever is happening at the time of the United States Uranus and Gemini return it will reverberate around the world you know for better for worse yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly, you know, World War II did, which was interesting because that actually just coincided, Uranus and Gemini coincided with US, the US's involvement in World War II, although it had been going on for like a couple of years at that point. Um, yeah, but we can just see some things falling in place. And then, of course, you know, next year in 2024, we get that next eclipse we were talking about, which is the one that just like crosses over uh does a, a, a america basically mm-hmm. yeah. yeah exactly um yeah in, interesting times and like a great point about how back in 2013 like you couldn't have understood the exact manifestation of certain um astrological events that would occur you know in the coming decade that would like you could see them see their symbolic meanings but not necessarily like exactly how it would come to be that now in 2023 such like large-scale um potentially volatile events i feel just you know just around the corner yeah well in 2013 all we could do is look at the past correlations the past like empirical data that we could draw on and we could say well you know this time during the civil war um during the second Uranus in Gemini pass was a great internal conflict where the country like turned in, in on itself. And then in this, the next one during World War II was a great like external war or fight. And so we just kind of like, we're like, that's, that's what we got so far. So we can anticipate that it's going to be one of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, although interesting, we're almost like looking at both at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we've got both the internal tensions of, you know, sort of like threats to the democratic process and like what would happen if that really was threatened and, and what kind of internal dissension there might be um, on that level. And then you've got the external tensions between, you know, the US and, 
Russia and the U.S. like fighting a proxy war through with Russia through Ukraine or the U.S. and the growing tensions with China and like that some of the um, people in the U.S. military think that the, that it's building up to some sort of actual conflict potentially with China or mm. now more recently we have um, things that are going on with um, Israel and Palestine and like the U.S. you know being in that role of supporting Israel and despite. You know, many Americans um, objecting to some of this stuff that's gonna that, that's happening in terms of the bombings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's making me think about how, like, now as we're completing the Pluto return of the United States, like we're seeing ways, I guess, in which the country has been irrevocably changed uh, through the period of that transit, but that maybe aren't super obvious now. But we might, you know as the next 244 years or whatever unfolds notice how this this time period um did correlate with events that set in course uh, or set in motion a course of events that were then you know on some levels activated by the saturn and neptune conjunction or then activated by the uranus and gemini um return yeah yeah because i think of i guess just some some people might have thought the Pluto return would be maybe like more extreme or dramatic in its manifestation. And while there were like extreme events that happened and the way that the United States became this obvious, like, um, I guess, place in terms of COVID-19 and how many deaths occurred and how conflicted like the internal management of like public health and safety was at that time. Um, it's still kind of will be interesting to see how much <laughs> over the course of history there will be like a clear demarcation of like the first Pluto cycle and the second Pluto cycle, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to come down. It was something we were talking about years ago, but now it's like coming back up again. But it seems like it's going to have to come down. It may come down to the like democratic process and whether the democratic mm-hmm. process survives um, after this point. Um, because that's like one of the challenges that's come up over the past few years is just like, yeah. are we going to have democracy? Is the results of an election going to be honored or is it going to be challenged and like overthrown essentially? And that might be one of the the questions that that really this time is about that, that we thought we were past in 2020, but actually we may not be. Right. Because it's just occurring to me that Pluto doesn't leave Capricorn for good until um, November 2024. Yeah. So there will be, yeah, there'll be like the, obviously like the national election at that time. And then we'll, we'll know to a certain extent what the, what the entire Pluto and Capricorn transit of, you know, 2008 through 2024, um, maybe what it really was about or what, how many different types of events ended up occurring beneath that time frame. Yeah, because that's one of the things in the past month that's really happening is you have some things that are being put in place, which is, you know, Trump is being brought up on charges, and some of them are related to that and related to like an election interference from 2020 and whether there's um, consequences for that or whether there's not. And, and the country could branch off in two different directions in terms of history, depending on how that's dealt with. And then um, you have that also happening in terms of just the house and um, the house putting somebody in place that could um, 
not honor that in the same way that 2020 wasn't. And if that could affect the future history of things, then we'll look back at this last, this Pluto station in October of 2020 and realize that that was an important turning point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just wild to think too, how, I guess, just looking again at how Pluto is going to kind of regress is going to go back into Aquarius and then regress to 29 degrees Capricorn and then ingress again. Mm-hmm. So just how many times it's doing that dip in and out um, and how many, just how much we're like, okay, is, you know, is this it? Is is this it? Is it over yet? And right. like, no, it's not really over until, you know, 12 months from now, really. Yeah. Until late 2024. And then because yeah. it's also setting up the next 20 years in terms of Pluto and Aquarius. Right. And that was really interesting to see at the beginning of this year, especially the, the just the intensity of like some of the AI stuff mm-hmm. um, earlier this year and how, even though it's still happening, how some of that receded, I feel like over the past several months when Pluto went back into Capricorn. But I think we're going to see that just like come, just raging back into being um, into this intensity in terms of the public consciousness, if that's part of what was correlating with that earlier this year. Yeah, it has been wild to watch it come suddenly to the forefront of public consciousness and then recede. Like it's just it's one of those things that's just really funny to track. Like, oh, Pluto's back in Capricorn. We're not like obviously developments and AI are still happening. It's still affecting a lot of people's jobs and livelihoods, but it's not the topic of public discourse the way it was at the beginning of the ingress. Yeah, it's like it's like waves on like an ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be a good way to conceptualize like the retrogrades and ingresses and stuff of just like uh, you've got a sandcastle that's like on a beach and you have like a wave that comes in and like hits it lightly and then you have another wave that comes in and hits it more strongly each time. Mm-hmm. But that there's this motion with the planets, especially outer planets that only move forward uh, a few degrees sometimes. Um, very slowly, but that that's this like process of of it coming back and forth in terms of intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and to even look at that in terms of like I guess the those long term orbs, like what Tarnus uses in terms of like um, outer planet cycles. Like, are we looking at ten degree orbs, or or what we tend to think of with natal transits in terms of sign ingresses and noticing just like how potent is a a sign ingress. Um, versus I, I guess just just I was surprised at how loud the the sign ingress of Pluto turned out to be because you you know you kind of wonder like it's such a slow moving planet is it really just like now all of a sudden we're going to start seeing more either you know natal house topics for the individual or you know, collective mundane themes related to that sign and it was pretty spot on I felt yeah it was pretty pretty there um, yeah, ingresses are important. I mean, that's always been, I think, because it's a, it's both. It's the Tarnus wide orbs are correct with outer planets of ten to fifteen degrees in some circumstances, but then also those sign ingresses. Like, there's there's definitive shifts in the energy at those times. That's very can be very palpable, and that in of itself also has been an interesting discovery for me over the past eight years doing the forecast episodes. Because um, I had always known that and seen that in natal astrology, and that was one of the things that sold me on like whole sign houses, for example, and and that you can test it by looking at an ingress into a new sign is also into a new house, which is something you can empirically validate. Um, but seeing those ingresses over the past eight years 
um, and and how much things do shift at the, at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. That's what just making me think of. We probably have already recapped this already, but like happy Venus, um, you know, like Venus cycle <laughs> for the podcast. I guess by oh, meeting eight an eight years. year milestone. Yeah. Yeah. This summer was the the retrograde of when we started doing the forecast episodes. Um, yeah. So that that was interesting and seeing the you know some of the shift like in the last month for example austin and i did the first time we've ever done a forecast just the two of us just because we felt like um things were so heavy and it was so serious that we want i want i I wanted especially to be responsible for what i said and what i wanted to say about things and and that's it and it, it didn't feel appropriate to put somebody else in that role because it's actually a really hard job and it was mm-hmm. something we hadn't felt since 2020 where it's like you go from doing astrology forecasts where it's kind of like a light conversational thing and you're kind of like predicting the energies of next month and people can try to relate that to their personal lives but then all of a sudden when you hit major worldwide events that are affecting people in very serious ways um suddenly it's it's like not a game anymore it's not a casual mm-hmm. thing and also as an astrologer, you want to do the best job you can. You want to try to anticipate or predict what's coming up in the future as accurately as you can, and also speak to things uh, as responsibly as you can at the same time. Um, and there's just some times where things get really serious like that. And um, yeah, recently was sort of returned to the seriousness that we haven't felt since like 2020. Yeah. And it's a, it is what's one of those tricky things I think to navigate, but I think it's part of the reason, at least, I mean, I can speak to my own personal opinion about why I would watch the, the astrology podcast forecast versus all of the other myriad possible astrology forecasts that you could be um, consuming at this point in time is, because I think there is a tendency for people to want to not necessarily sugarcoat things, but maybe tiptoe around the difficult transits or the difficult omens. And it's, I mean, I, th- I think like you, you know, you and Austin take that job seriously of knowing that there are going to be a lot of people feeling like they're getting der- their information um, from you guys. And if you're too, too, I guess like too optimistic or not serious enough about when things look serious, then that can have a cascading impact on you know a lot of people's lives in terms of like are they making decisions based off of this forecast? Um, yeah, I don't even, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad we in 2020 we didn't um, sugarcoat it too much. And we learned a lot about how not to. And then mm-hmm. I'm especially glad in October, in the October forecast, just a month or two ago, that we didn't sugarcoat it. We were pretty clear about seeing it was going to be a very difficult month and articulating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've learned a lot over the past several years about why that's important. But that's still a constant tension for me, even as an astrologer, even personally, in terms of finding the right balance between pessimism and optimism or realism versus sometimes it being good to set an idealized best case scenario and to 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 work towards that mm-hmm. um and to find the balance between the two i think it's hard even still as a seasoned astrologer for me sometimes to look at a difficult transit coming up and when you know what the worst case scenarios could be to still um 
internally in yourself, you still have to try to actually push yourself sometimes to cultivate a sense of optimism or hope or or um, attempt to like change things and make things better and not uh, either fear or or fall into a sense of like pessimism about it. Yeah, it's true. And it's like, it always comes down to as well, like you're looking at the mundane forecasts and trying to balance that in terms of like a global perspective, but you can't accurately or fully convey to an individual who's trying to understand how these mundane events will affect their natal chart. It, like it's difficult to convey, again, the huge range of variants that could potentially occur because you could see someone with them. Um, uh, like a let's say like in my own natal chart where Mars is very strongly placed and it's the malefic of of the sect and so I might personally experience Mars transits like dramatic Mars transits as challenging but as ultimately having like beneficial outcomes um but you can't say that universally for you know even people with the same you know the same Mars sign or or what have you so just again trying to convey like here's maybe the the, the the safest possible bet in terms of the range of expressions of a certain transit, but uh, uh, on the personal level, there yeah, there's going to be that huge variation in terms of how um, beneficial or unbeneficial that transit's going to be. Yeah, for sure. And that always, like I said, that always put me away from doing general forecasts for the longest time. Um, but now I understand more the benefit of it because it's like forecasting the weather and like mm. it's going to it's going to snow tomorrow and for you know a lot of people they may still feel the experience of that even if it doesn't hit them as personally that it's like it's cold outside and like you have to wear a jacket and therefore that tells you something about the energy of the time versus even though there can be a range of experience of like the person whose car breaks down and then has to like walk a mile in the snow to get to a gas station and therefore has a much more personal negative experience of that versus like another person where the transits are hitting them more positively and it snows, but they still like have an indoor wedding and get married and it's being a, a lovely experience or something like that. Yeah, well, I think that's a great metaphor because I mean, even yeah, just in the instance of a snow, like a rare snow day in a town that doesn't get snow, like yeah, some people are just like, cool, I'm taking the day off work. I'm going to go sledding with my kids. Right. Yeah, versus something that's a more unfortunate experience that is just like here's this generalized event that everyone is going to be uh, experiencing in a in a very personal or individualized way yeah and that there's like a place for both and like knowing that both are going on to whatever extent you can is is actually helpful or can be helpful mm -hmm. yeah that's that's very true even in terms of i guess like sometimes it's like how do you mitigate fear you know if you see a um like a malefic looking set of transits coming up. How do you tell for yourself? Like how, how weary should I be or what can I do to mitigate my fears is maybe just taking that time to think that a, like a blanket statement of a generalized forecast is like, you need to kind of level set with yourself. Um, how much does your chart support or negate the, I guess the intensity of that, that transit, if you will. Right. Yeah, that really gets to something core about the value of astrology because there's limitations. Like, no matter how good you are as an astrologer, like, you never know 100% like exactly what's going to happen in the sense that you're not looking at like a crystal ball that shows you like a movie of exactly what's going to take place. You're still working with a archetypal symbol system 
um, that shows you a range of different possible manifestations and gives you sometimes a pretty good, pretty clear idea of what's likely to take place. Um, but there's still like a provisional like nature to all astrological predictions, um, and that in and of itself can be good and bad in terms of not knowing until the event comes, which can instill a, like uncertainty or, or fears surrounding things, fears that it could be the worst case scenario, and how to manage that. But also leaves room for because you don't know hundred percent that you should always try to strive to get the best manifestation. And that it almost gives you a certain amount of like free will um, because of the not not indeterminacy, but just because of the lack of one hundred percent certainty of exactly what's going to take place. Yeah, yeah, it leaves room to feel like you can, um, yeah, engage in some kind of remedial practice and get the maybe an experience that is still like martial, say, or martial Plutonian in nature, but that is of a more manageable. Uh, nature rather than a more disruptive nature right yeah for sure yeah it's like it's going to manifest somehow or you're you know you're going to experience things that are on that theme but can you kind of with like proper preparation or even just with being in a state of awareness can you therefore put yourself like kind of mitigate the number of maybe like risky um choices you're going to make at that time for instance right for sure yeah yeah um, yeah, and that, and can you, and and can you mitigate it? Um, that's one of the tricky things because sometimes it comes from an action within yourself, and other times it comes from a circumstances, a circumstance from without that's like outside of your control. True, and it was it was just making me think about kind of like what, like what is this inherent benefic nature of certain planets? Like I've been just contemplating recently. Jupiter as representing the ally or the like the wise person so either like a friend who comes along and helps you out or a like a teacher who gives you a piece of information that then changes the course of your life because you're open to this new piece of information um and just i guess how much working with transit sometimes can just be a process of identifying who has recently showed up in your life or who among your usual circle of friends is archetypally of, of the nature of a certain planet. So if you have a person in your inner circle who feels archetypally Jupiterian to you, um, then maybe if you're going through a hard time, that that friend then becomes somebody who like lifts your spirits because they have that jovial nature. Um, or perhaps if you're looking at an upcoming Jupiter transit, perhaps you you just take note of who's coming into your um, who's just coming into your sphere at, at that time and noticing that these might be people who are Jupiterian in nature and they end up um, inspiring you or helping you out in some way. I think it's it's that kind of something about transits where it's not always about um like you taking action necessarily sometimes the mitigating factor is that there are there are helpful people showing up um who yeah lend you a hand in your time of need yeah for sure that's really important and like or like a a doctor it's like a, or a therapist or it's just like somebody coming into your life that has a positive influence um yeah that can be really important and that is symbolized by that transit or alternatively somebody that comes in that's like a negative influence that is also symbolized by that transit. Yeah. And even just again, how it can be nuanced in terms of even the planets themselves, where like Jupiter could show up as a very 
beneficial influence in your life or it could show up as something that's like maybe too exaggerated in terms of the the faith or the optimism and similarly someone could show up as a saturnian influence in your life who makes you feel more limited or small in a way that's not helpful or they could show up and make you feel like more grounded or more supported um yeah somebody who can help you feel as though like your burden is is lifted because they're sharing the work with you um so that actually then might help us to circle all the way back around to the beginning because it's mm -hmm. like what then is the nature of astrology then that that works and i think it comes back to this thing about it being it's like we're talking about like a a code almost or a language to put it in another way that's like underlying reality and that is telling you like what's happening in reality um but it's using something that's underlying reality um in a way that we we can conceptualize in modern times as like a code mm -hmm. um is probably the closest analogy we can come up with that astrology is like the code that's underlying reality or our lives in some sense yeah that's something that i think people who um potentially are you know are familiar with computer code tend to like again con for instance is um like a familiar with um computer technology to like a lifelong degree and has posited that like if you're into simulation theory astrology represents a pretty good model for the code that underlies um, the the simulation if you will right yeah um, i'm surprised like none of the actual like simulation type people that promote that have gotten into astrology or that nobody has like um seen the parallel and I, I sort of await the day in which like somebody's gonna do that eventually or mm -hmm. some, you know some simulation theorist will notice that and see that astrology literally would represent the very thing that they posit exists or or must exist and and, and astrology would be sort of like evidence of that. Yeah, I'm awaiting that day as well. I think that it's you know if we don't see the total annihilation of, of astrology in the few, next few years, I think we might see the opposite where it actually does become embraced by, um, uh, I guess, even like the techno-capitalist community as potentially this um, extremely um, profitable tool for analyzing people and analyzing society and um, being able to potentially create nefarious social structures or businesses that are all around like okay now that we take astrology seriously um yeah how can we capitalize on it how can we exploit it how can we um sell people on the idea that um they're right for this job or not right for that job or right for this relationship not right for that relationship there's i guess ways in which astrology is just this technology that is inherently neutral as many technologies are that when fallen into certain hands could be yeah could potentially be exploited yeah i mean there's definitely certain different dystopian scenarios and things like that that i've thought of and uh, you know i don't think we'll see the annihilation of astrology even if it, even if it went that direction because astrology always survives it just goes through periods of sometimes of suppression or greater or lesser popularity or things like that yeah um but yeah, Pluto and Aquarius will definitely be interesting in terms of that um, because it's not necessarily always good because we know that there's good applications of astrology. But if there's good applications of astrology, there by extension 
are also bad applications of astrology or misuses of astrology and things like that in ways that it could be not good. Yeah, which makes sense. I feel like astrology even in itself presents that um, that dichotomy, how in every, you know, in order for a good thing to exist, a bad thing must exist. So in order right. for people who would like to, you know, use astrology to benefit humanity, there will be people who want to use astrology to, yeah, exploit or subjugate humanity. Right, or like attempt to. Um, yeah, or attempt to, yeah. And going back to the um, the code thing, because it doesn't even have to be in like a technological sense, but it can also, mm -hmm. you know, the more ancient metaphors can be like a script or like a book, mm -hmm. like the book of a person's life. And there's, in some ways, in some of the different like ways of conceptualizing fate or the way different cultures conceptualize fate, like the notion of like a person's life being written out as a book or a script ahead of time. Um, as another way of conceptualizing astrology and what fate is and mm -hmm. how astrology itself somehow taps into some underlying sense of one's fate or destiny or what the the script or the narrative is of one's life. Like you're getting a peek into like you're an actor on a play uh, and and that you suddenly get a, an ability to read your script ahead of time and see what some of the major outlines of it are. I love that metaphor. Yeah, I think that's another way of conceptualizing it that would be very at home with some of the ancient views that doesn't necessarily have to be in a conceptualized in like a purely technological or like code-based sense. That's true. I mean, it's occurring to me that even like we talk about, we use the word code to talk about like uh, genetic code or DNA structures. So there is this uh, biologically recognized sort of like predeterminism or range of possibilities that is going to exist for a person just based on their genetic code and you know to the extent to which some experiences that they a person has in their life are you know, are determined by that um, like what they've inherited versus what has been um, what they've experienced what's shaped them in their environment or the choices they've made so it's interesting to even look astrology as that as just being it's one it's another one of the like inherited um principles that you start life with and then what you know you might experience some variance within that but it still kind of sets up a a range of of controls or boundaries in terms of what type of life experiences you might be able to have yeah i really like that that's a good analogy cuz that also ties in with things like family astrology and how you'll tend to see repetitions of certain placements or certain signatures in a person's chart that shows up in like other family members charts and then you realize that there's some of those are like personality traits in some instances or, or tendencies that are sometimes being like passed down mm -hmm. um and yeah that that could make sense as a, as a core like conceptualizing uh sort of access point yeah that's always i mean it's really it's always sweet too. I mean, or depending on how you feel about your family, it's really interesting to study, like even you know what of your parents' big three. You know how do those show up in your chart? Um, like in some way, it feels like it's probably connected with them. Um, I guess what you can additionally study in psychology in terms of like passing on, just like intergenerational, uh, almost like inherited traumas or other types of inherited experiences that. Um, you think like shouldn't necessarily reach the next generation, but they do. 
there's some way in which you can see those patterns in the in the natal charts from generation to generation and try to assess like to what degree will um, the difficult circumstances of the parents, uh, like what kind of effects might those or the beneficial circumstances of, of the parents, how will that be then experienced by their children? Yeah, for sure. Um, that's a really interesting area of energy, intergenerational. I talked to Aaron about that like a year ago. Yeah. It was about like intergenerational um, things that are passed on, including like traumas and things like that, um, and how that shapes people in pretty significant ways. Um, but yeah, astrology is an access point for that. And being that, that brings up just there's so many different astrology is so vast and there's so many different ways to approach it, but so much you need to learn as an astrologer. It can be somewhat overwhelming sometimes in order to truly do a like a good job of it. You have to study so many different fields and understand so many different things about human life because astrology speaks broadly to to human life. Yeah, it's such an interdisciplinary subject. I think is why I mean, people who are or why it's considered mercurial I guess you you take your interest in a lot of different fields and then you find that they all have some application or some relevance to astrology or that vice versa that astrology can be used as a lens in which to play with or analyze but like zooming back out all types of fields yeah um, which then though is tricky because then sometimes astrologers have a tendency then to try to be a jack of all trades and, and know a little bit about a lot of different things. But then sometimes astrologers get caught up in um, saying, you know, making remarks about things that they don't have a huge background in in, in a certain field. And mm -hmm. I, I notice that sometimes with like history or like geopolitics or things like that, um, you know, with everything going in, in in like the Middle East right now. And because I want to, you know, I've always cultivated a thing where I try not to speak on things that I don't have much background in or like I'm not very familiar with because mm -hmm. I know having developed like intense specialization in a certain field of like ancient astrology or Greco-Roman, like Hellenistic astrology in particular, you know, I understand what it's like to know something because you've studied it so thor thoroughly that you're an authority on a topic and what it looks like when somebody speaks on that topic that clearly isn't that familiar with it. And how embarrassing that is, um, not wanting to repeat the same thing myself by speaking on things that I'm not familiar with. Um, but that due to the necessity of my job, especially the forecast episodes, like wanting to learn as much as I can about those things that I have to speak on. Um, so so reading a lot about um the Middle East and about Israel and Palestine recently, for example, is as like a major thing. And I think that's something really important for astrologers to do. Because it was something when I came into the field that I noticed the previous generation didn't do as well um, in terms of like educating themselves on stuff before speaking on it, and it's it's something I've seen the younger generation doing better, and I hope we'll continue to have more improvement in that in terms of um, you know it's not enough it's not sufficient just to be an astrologer, but if you're gonna apply astrology to a specific subdiscipline to also become knowledgeable about whatever that that area is that you're 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 applying astrology to. Yeah, that's a really great point. It's making me think almost like if you're majoring in astrology, make sure that your minor is something that you're also passionate about. Yeah. So like, that you can yeah, you can speak to authority on that subdiscipline as you're saying. Yeah. I mean it's like if you're gonna be if you're gonna apply astrology and therapy to like, you know, become 
really well-trained astrologer, but then also to learn, you know, therapy and, and psychology and counseling techniques and things like that. Or if like you're gonna apply astrology to um I don't know, history, like to study astrology, but also study what specific fields or areas of history that you want to specialize in. There's a bunch of things like that where you've got to make the effort to learn as much as you can about um, those other things that you're going to apply astrology to. Yeah, that's a really great point. I feel like that can even be just like helpful for, um, uh, you know, beginning astrologers to to keep in mind or to even just initiate their study in that way in terms of identifying which other topics or um, fields of study are they genuinely interested in or passionate about and try to specialize in that to supplement your astrological, um, I guess, uh, work and don't like feel as though you have to comment on things that you don't actually know anything about. Is that like, I can relate to that I guess that pressure or that feeling of like potential embarrassment if you are going to try to address, say, history or world politics and you don't actually have a lot of personal um, information or background in that field. You, know, you might feel like, oh, well, I'm the only astrologer in, in the room and people are asking me for my opinion astrologically on world events. Um, just making it okay to just admit like, although I'm an astrologer, my focus is natal astrology or my focus is you know what have you i can't really comment on the astrology of world events right now without being potentially insensitive um or just or even misinformed or misguided yeah for sure i mean on the i guess on the other side the flip side the positive thing is just that once you learn astrology you realize how um because it applies so broadly um, it can lead you into the study of many different things that maybe you wouldn't have got into or wouldn't have been interested in otherwise. Mm -hmm. But it can be like a reason to study up on other things like history or like psychology or even you know medicine to a certain extent. Or just there's so many different fields that astrology can be applied to. It can be the gateway into um, having a, a sort of like lifelong love of learning and, and learning about so many different topics that you might not have been exposed to otherwise. That's a great point. Yeah, I feel personally astrology got me way more jazzed about history <laughs> than mm. I might have been otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, just like how cool it is to kind of, I guess it gives you another context for looking at history, just trying to imagine what, you know, just what the um, celestial patterns of that time might have felt like or how finding the similarities and you know, just like as you often mention in terms of studying Greco-Roman astrology how human culture at that time in a lot of ways was not that different like uh, the fact that we can use the themes and metaphors or the observations that were found at that time and they're still relevant today really that it gives you this sense of of empathy or, or like a, like humanity that can be difficult to access for a lot of people otherwise when you're studying history. Yeah, there's this universality to human experience and to some of the basic like dynamics of life that is true across time and across cultures. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of how just I, there's this kind of this thing that I like to reflect on occasionally, which is that like Homo sapiens as a species has been around for 200,000 years. So we've been like, we've had the same brains like the same capabilities in terms of our of our intellect and perhaps of our like our personality differences and our 
um, preferences and all these ways that we socialize like as a species we've been in existence for this long so um there's there's something very like when you start thinking about that and astrology can be like maybe a tool for helping you start to conceptualize that just like how much we we don't even really understand about the history of humanity and maybe even how long certain certain ways of knowing the, the language of the stars or of the planets might have been um, with humanity from like its very inception, but because of you know, oral history or just like the inability to preserve otherwise other methods of recording, we don't truly know how old, um, I guess the relationship of humanity with the stars truly is. Yeah, that was something I was reflecting on a lot recently that like the writing is not as old as like you think it is. Like it doesn't go back as far as one might think. Like mm -hmm. written records are only, you know, five, six thousand years old for the most part, mm -hmm. um, especially for in terms of astrology, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so much human history that did precede that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it is interesting to think about in that context. Yeah, you see, I mean, I guess just as I've been living in Australia and I've been interested in, I guess, like the indigenous um, astrologies or cosmologies of that area because Australia is home to like the world's oldest continuing culture. Like, the indigenous Australians um, to various extents have had a, a culture that is 50 or 60,000 years old and that that type of culture survives through oral history and to think of how many different human cultures, you know, around the world uh, will just never be able to know what what they studied or what they knew because they were, you know, they were like genocided at a certain point in time um, or their, you know, yeah, their histories were erased because all of the people who belong to that culture are no longer alive. In a certain way, just like how amazing oral history is in terms of preserving and passing on knowledge, but also how vulnerable it is because it requires like living um living documents people becoming the the documentation of their culture yeah for sure um that was something i became interested in recently last month when i was starting to read some like news stories about different in indigenous traditions surrounding eclipses in like the americas and mm -hmm. sometimes in terms of them being negative events or in terms of uh desire to like not be outside during that time and it wasn't it wasn't really something I had studied very much up to that point, um, but it suddenly made me very interested in what the oral traditions were of different indigenous traditions and different cultures around the world in terms of eclipses and what might be known from that, mm -hmm. um, and that that might be one of the few things that that is sort of passed on in some way orally, um, even if it's not documented or written down as much. Yeah, there's this book called The First Astronomers where. Um, um yeah, an, an astronomer is literally, he's a Western guy, but he's um, doing like interviewing um, indigenous elders in Australia um, who do have this, this oral history of like how um, ast astrology in a certain sense has been used in their cultures throughout time. And it's often just like very practical purposes, as you might imagine, why humans would develop any technology, um, like looking at the sol like when does the solstice occur like we can measure that by this like looking at this position of a mountain in our landscape um we have a person in our culture who's responsible for going up to the mountain and checking like 
when the solstice is going to occur or when some other kind of movement is going to occur and we'll be able to identify at that time um, what types of you know what types of food tend to be abundant it, like as a way of marking the seasons just kind of thinking about beyond the mediterranean climate how in, in all climates and all areas where humans would live and become you know indigenous to their climate they would be using the positions of the planets and stars in order to uh, yeah as a timekeeping device to know when to maybe migrate to certain areas or to um, like hunt for a certain animal because that animal is always around at that time of year so sort of like measuring cyclic events that are relevant to certain cultures yeah that's really interesting because that makes you realize the fundamental experience that astrologers have of like different um, periods of time having different qualities that that would have been an experience um, that most all ancient cultures would have developed to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, like I think about sometimes how like Stonehenge or other sort of like um, stone or Neolithic um, uh, sort of arrangements astronomically were used to track you know the seasons or different things like that. And to some extent, astrologers are still following the same astronomical principles that they're using to study the quality of different periods of time yeah yeah it, it just makes me think of how um I mean, one thing we take for granted how diffused the night sky is now you know due to light pollution whereas in um you know any era the certainly in the time in which humans evolved and then for the vast majority of our history the light would be such a immensely detailed and fascinating source of information and it was probably pretty early on in uh, like the human species existence that they would have noticed that certain lights in the sky move and would have used that uh, i think because we are like insatiably curious um, reflective animals we we would have been looking for anything in our environment that we could use to um i guess to make life easier and so astrology would have evolved as a technology to to make life easier to be able to track seasons and animal movements and you know vegetation cycles uh, because those were that was information that was important to us and then perhaps um as we developed more complex societies or perhaps we've always had complex societies we would have then seen the potential to use astrology as a tool for analyzing each other analyzing ourselves or analyzing our life events like and there's a certain way in which astrology just really it just reflects like i guess it does reflect human nature that we are this this very curious creature who likes to find um who likes to find meaning or find ways of using like everything in our environment and again just today we take for granted that the night sky is a potentially very rich source of information because we just we can't even see it anymore we don't have a literal relationship with it it's a really interesting point that like um to the extent that society and humans were more dependent on nature or more at the mercy of nature thousands of years ago and therefore paid, would have paid much closer attention to it and therefore would have noticed even more um, vividly the correlations between celestial movements and earthly events um, to the extent that humanity through technology has grown more independent of nature and more 
um, not as at the mercy of it on a day-to-day basis in terms of like, I don't know, living in societies and um, having weather-controlled houses or what have you, and therefore not depending on like day-to-day changes in the weather or other things with nature, that we've become more divorced from that and Mm -hmm. therefore wouldn't notice the correlations as much simply because we're not even looking at the sky as much or the sky isn't even visible as much as one of the points you're making in terms of the night sky and due to light pollution. So it's just not as obvious to us. Or like with eclipses, you know, that's another thing where it's like that's the rare thing where sometimes we do all still like go out and check that out, but it's not even still everybody in society like it would have been like two or three thousand years ago. Yeah. Um even that is more limited in terms of the whatever cross section of society will like go out and go watch an eclipse or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's rare that everyone would actually take a break from their jobs or whatever task they were doing at hand to step outside and look. And I think that was one of the reasons why that eclipse across North America in 2017 struck me so significantly was uh, because I was on the West Coast at the time and um it like you know it started in the east coast and went across the west i was kind of watching it um watching the live footage for sort of like as it hit each major city across america and the gatherings of people that were coming outside to watch and it had this like very strong feeling of how yeah how powerful these celestial events can be or or when it does feel very personal when you're in the path of totality how it then becomes very interesting to look at the sky. Um, but yeah, we, we kind of take it for granted, uh, you know, the entire rest of the time. Yeah, that's really striking. And, and just become more divorced from it because most people, you know, some people, you know, probably spent the entire day inside and maybe never noticed that it was happening or ne- mm-hmm. never even saw it on the news or what have you. Totally. Um, and therefore, wouldn't have connected that like this eclipse is happening and then all this crazy stuff is happening in society or in the world politics at the same time or even in their personal lives that like you know they're a relationship that they're getting a, a relationship just ended and another one just began like was the case with you mm-hmm. um most people just you wouldn't ever see those correlations because we're so divorced from um looking at the sky Mm-hmm. versus in in most ancient cultures you know even even a few hundred years ago there would have been more of a uh being exposed to it on a more regular basis yeah it's really interesting even just using the term divorced is i think is striking to me maybe perhaps because we're in this venus and libra uh, transit now um but thinking about like humans being divorced from nature versus humans being in a like a loving relationship with nature like kind of un- this is I'm a Jupiter and Taurus person, so I think I have a lot of like nature philosophy um, or curiosity, at least with like, how did humans evolve? What were the circumstances um, surrounding our evolution? So therefore, like, why, why are we the way we are today? Um, And like, you just contemplate what it's like to be not just at the mercy of nature, but in kinship with nature and relationship with it and how much again, astrology would make sense at that time because you're seeing, you know, your entire environment as something that you can relate to, that you can have a relationship with. So you're thinking even, you know, not just the plants and animals around you, but the, um, 
yeah, the sky itself, the you know, or the or the gods who are writing the messages in the sky, what have you. Um, you have a maybe a relationship or even a responsibility to understand the the messages or the symbols coming through if you can perceive them. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, for sure, because it gets to something core about like animism and the idea like the universe could be speaking to you. And that sometimes when you have a really important event in your life and there is a major astronomical event happening at the same time that you take it as an omen and and what an omen is is it's like a it's like a speaking it's like a message that's mm -hmm. like coming through from the universe in some sense um and that a long time ago there was more of an openness of the possibility of like the universe speaking to you because of the conceptualization that it was alive and had consciousness in the same way that that we do individually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even if it's not the same type of consciousness, that it is a type of consciousness that is worth relating to. And I think that is kind of where maybe the the skeptical or the scientific mind can get stuck. Is that um, like there's I just I like Neil deGrasse Tyson, but obviously he's a like a famous um, astrology skeptic, and I remember him like being interviewed on some talk show and he's being asked about astrology and he goes just like of course the universe doesn't give a shit about you right yeah yeah which is you know which is funny and is definitely true in a in a way if you're looking at like an objectively measurable dead universe but if you're looking at the way that humanity related to and in some cultures still does relate to the universe um as this like the possibility of having a subjectively meaningful relationship between like you know an individual human and the world around you at large um it's not a, there's this i guess there's just this cultural bias that we're actually imposing on um i guess when we say that the universe is devoid of meaning or that it's inherently dead it's a very like um again i think richard tarnas probably articulates this pretty well but but we kind of take for granted how that perspective is born of a time period that is very specific to this time period and very specific to like Western culture. And it's not necessarily a, um, a perspective that makes sense to all humans alive today. And certainly one that doesn't make sense to humans from, you know, over the past tens of thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, well, that's one of the potentials is that astrology is like the one thing I think that could provide a counterpoint to that. Um, that I think in any sort of eventual, um, you know, singular like theory of everything or like scientific theory of the universe that explains things for a while, that astrology will be part of that because it's pointing to like a property of nature that you might not have access to or you wouldn't have a reason to think exists otherwise yeah yeah which is another interesting point i guess like and again i'll credit colin for this idea but the fact that all of life on earth evolved um under like pretty similar celestial circumstances as what we have now like the solar system was you know i think like relatively speaking in in place you know those billions of years ago um so there's this almost like this controlled environmental parameter that we can say was occurring throughout the entire evolution of of life on earth and 
although it's hard to conceptualize how the positions of the other planets in the solar system might have had an influence on life evolving in earth um it's it's i think it's possible to conceive of how there could have been an impact like we know of course that the proximity of earth to its satellite the moon and to you know its star the sun like that those have very obvious implications for how life was able to evolve here um, but the fact that we don't know yet how to measure some of the impacts of the other planets doesn't mean that it couldn't possibly be measured right and and whether that's like the mechanism for astrology through some sort of like physical right. influence of the planets or whether they're just um keyed into something about time and time having qualitative properties even if it's not even if astrology's um reflecting what's going on on earth without necessarily being the cause of it right yeah um, like you can just you can totally ignore the or like the causal property isn't necessarily as as important as perhaps like um scientific skeptics are making it out to be just the fact that there is some kind of harmonic or you know some kind of resonant or correlative property is interesting enough in itself and that it might be working on some level that can't be measured in a causative way yeah well there's just an assumption that because we don't know uh any property that could cause a causal influence they assume astrologers are positing a causal influence from the planets and then mm -hmm. say because there's no one known for that um it's not possible and therefore it's not worth looking into beyond that and mm -hmm. that's where most skeptics stop in terms of their knowledge of astrology um mm -hmm. Which is kind of silly because it's just like that's like every scientific hypothesis ever just about is that at first you don't know how something is happening right or why and so you you investigate it yeah you just investigate that there is an effect there's some um thing that's happening and then sometimes you work your way backwards to like why is that happening yeah like a, just literally gravity like we don't know how or why it was happening but it was having an effect forever on this planet um you know prior to like newton just you know beginning that conversation of what it actually was right so astrology could be similar in that way of like whatever effect that it's having for whatever reason is still applicable regardless of us not knowing um yeah the exact method by which it is occurring yeah and that and that humans have developed like complex ways of using gravity prior to newton and prior to the ability to conceptualize like what was actually happening mm -hmm. and then even once newton had developed his theory of gravitation um that it didn't um then mean that that was like the final thing and we had it all figured out because then you have like einstein you know later um that further refines what gravity is and like how it works and everything else um, and the relationship between space time and and blah blah blah. So mm -hmm. yeah, I hope at some some point like somebody's going to come along because we have those rare instances of like a a person like like Carl Jung. We have a person like um, Richard Tarnas or somebody like that where it's like occasionally you get those people that come along that have that that have this specialty training in like certain fields of like history or psychology or or sciences. You know, you have famous science scientists of the past, like um, Kepler or Ptolemy or what have you. But then they also notice astrology and they look into it and realize there's something to it. And then they do really important work um, 
merging the two or trying to figure out some sort of grand unified field theory. And um, yeah, it's it's a matter of time before we get another one of those. It would be nice if it happens in our lifetimes. Like mm-hmm. I kind of hope that would happen. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in the podcast and contributing to that is outlining a lot of the the theoretical principles and, and different things for astrology so that there's like a body of that work that a person like that could come in and like draw on and um you know get up to date pretty quickly with like the full range of astrology. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah it'll be interesting to see what that looks like at some point when that happens again. Yeah, it does start I mean it has been feeling like it's more and more possible in our lifetimes. Again, like we were discussing at the beginning, the onboarding tools for astrology that are available now where you don't necessarily have to spend um, you know, a decade of your life just feeling like you're starting to get the hang of it. Um for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, just as again, for example, like I'm I'm of that generation of astrologers who's just coming in in 2017. And um, it's like we almost can't even like, I mean, not to just like totally be a fan of the podcast, but how instrumental the your podcast already is in terms of helping this wave of astrologers on board. Like it, certainly I was a listener, you know, in that in the the first you know year of my study and i don't know it's just yeah it's just a, it's it is an exciting time because of all of the various like just the accessibility now and if it continues to be accessible and um you know people entering astrology in their teens or 20s continue to do so then it, you know, it's only a matter of time before like with that uh, range of diversity in in humans you know coming into the field the right combination of person or people will get together and yeah, continue to continue to innovate continue to push not only like the, the philosophy, but the practical applications, I guess, of astrology. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And, and we're at such an amazing point in history because we've re- almost recovered as much of our history as can be recovered at this point. There's mm-hmm. still like work to be done, but we've never had access to as much of the previous tradition um, as we do now at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been such a renaissance from that and from the merging of the ancient and the contemporary traditions. Yeah. Um, and then also now the increasing leveraging of technology and different technologies and how that's speeding up what we can do as well. It's true. And even just like we can't underestimate how now more than ever um, people are fascinated with the study of the self, You know, maybe perhaps in part because of social media and like cultural critics sometimes look at that as a negative thing, just like how much um, young people today have to like cultivate their public image or have to control their their image or their concept of self. But seeing that happen at the same time that astrology is seeing a resurgence in popularity, I think is super interesting because um, people are certainly using astrology to to do exactly that, to try to understand the nature of their their public persona, um, or to try to understand what is authentic to them in terms of life choices, and separate that from you know what they might be seeing otherwise as um, you know the various identity representations that um, I guess like something that can happen when you're a young person and you're trying to figure yourself out and you see maybe if you're a young person today and you're seeing someone who's popular on Instagram. If you don't have any idea of your sense of your true self, then you, you know you could be 
fraught in terms of trying to decide who to become or what to do with your life. Um, so if a young person then has a tool like natal astrology, um, they can from that early point in their life start to cultivate decisions that are more authentic to them and maybe suffer less from that chaos of of trying to trying to fit in or trying to make choices that please others versus those that fit the true nature of yourself. Mm, yeah. And finding who yourself. I mean, that's the always the eternal quest that every human's always had, which is like, who am I and what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And to whatever extent that astrology can speak to that, even in part, I mean, it's a it's a useful tool for for people and it has been for millennia. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just it has that potential again to save um, people that that anguish of not knowing, like you know, how to be useful in the world. You know, in this age of crises that we're in, um, yeah, it can be difficult to not know how to affect any kind of change um, if that's what you're into, or how to even just yeah validate your own existence when so much of the problems now seem to be just like oh we have we have too many people and we're consuming too many resources and climate change is going to get us and all these topics that i think are on a lot of young people's minds like if they can use a tool like astrology to i guess validate their existence in some way or identify a way in which they are you know like their unique life path can have some significant impact or um, what have you? Yeah, it, is, it can it can be helpful in that way in terms of giving people, I guess, like hope or guidance, which I think is crucial. I guess for even in just like a mental health perspective in this day and age. Yeah, for sure. And just figuring out like who they are and what they're doing here, and helping them to find their unique path in this world and um, where things are headed, and to get a little bit of a heads up or a shortcut in terms of figuring that out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, super super valuable and that's probably always been the core thing that's the most useful about astrology mm -hmm. yeah and then now we're in the age where it's like astrologers aren't just um attendants to the kings um everybody can become their own astrologer which is such a magical time to be alive yeah for sure the increasing like levels of the democratization of astrology over time has been interesting to see like that it was for like kings and emperors were employing astrologers in like like 7 BCE, 7th century BCE. And then at some point there may have been like a cultural shift where they weren't. And then it was like not long after that that you see the development of like natal astrology. Mm -hmm. And so that that shift away from like a certain level of political centralization of astrology may have been part of the thing that led to natal astrology in the first place. Um and then different levels of that over the past few centuries as well. It's interesting seeing that. Mm -hmm, that's true. It's so one of those just like, I guess, fun facts that I like to throw out to skeptics on occasion. It's just like, well, astrologers used to be like employees of the state. Mm. <laughs> just, when, just being that that person who the king needed to fund in order to know about uh, their fate. Yeah, I was reading this book. It was on like Mesopotamian divination and astrology. And it, the way they framed it was actually super interesting because they were just like, this was the most advanced technology in the ancient world that could tell you your future. And every um, geopolitical, every state actor and entity like wanted access to that because it was of huge like strategic importance. 
And it was like when framed in that way, I thought it was really fascinating because I'd never thought about it that way before. But you mm -hmm. sort of like understand, okay, like this is what was happening in, in ancient Mesopotamia and why um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you see, like, I guess in terms of like ancient funding, just like how much would have been put into the study of astrology. And just uh, I think again, going into the idea that astronomy only exists because of astrology the whole reason why people start to study and measure and predict the movements of the of the planet so the celestial sphere is because it has um symbolic relevance like it's just almost like why else do humans do anything because we think it's important we we think it's useful like this idea of astrology being some relic of an era in which humans were just complete dum-dums is silly because uh, it's really missing that historical context of just how critically important people were considering this information at that time. Yeah, it was definitely a major motivating factor and driving factor for so many centuries in the development of different forms of astronomy and, and mathematical astronomy in particular in different models. Mm -hmm. um, Although it's funny, you know, when I released the eclipses episode last month and I really released some clips on social media, like the one that went the most viral was the one about the British royal family and showing how they had all those eclipses, like, mm. you know, throughout their family history over the past century. But like some of the comments I got that were really annoying were that they were like, well, it's because the British, the, the royal royals have been employing astrologers for hundreds of years and they still do and they're just planning everything out. And I was really surprised mm. by that. It was kind of annoying because it wasn't actually the conclusion we were drawing from it. Like the point of those examples was like astrology works. And this is an example of how it really coincides very dramatically, especially with prominent and powerful people. Um, eclipses coinciding with their lives in different ways. Um, but it was interesting that for some people, it was just like they go to more of like a conspiracy mindset of like, yeah, it's not that astrology works. It's that like elites are using it to control people, which is not necessarily true mm -mm. and is not really still the case in terms of um, royalty always like using astrologers or that being an official position or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It would be surprising if that was what was actually going on, especially in terms of it being pretty difficult to control. like. Right. Yeah. Aside from a planned C-section, it's difficult to control the moment of birth. And even if you are doing a C-section, you still have to you have to you know become pregnant at a certain time and have a successful pregnancy and yeah, all these other variables that make like the notion of controlling the exact time of a birth of a significant leader. Um, yeah, pretty hard to pretty hard to fudge yeah or like deaths and like right as if that's controlled or like you know with prince william it was like that his wife who was like born his future wife who was born six months before him also happened to be born on an eclipse just like he was mm -hmm. it's like yeah stuff like that or or that his brother would later like announce he's leaving the family like on the eclipse in in january of 2020 for example mm-hmm um, yeah, they're not all just going like, okay, I'm going to make my announcement, but I'm going to time it to an eclipse. Right, because exactly. Because we're secretly astrologers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really don't think that's happening. And and mm -hmm. so... Well, and even what you found with like US uh, presidents, I guess, mentioning that with Patrick again, just that 
you would find that the the person who was winning the election would be the person who was having eclipses in like their angular houses at that time. Right. Yeah. It's like when you view it in the totality, you realize this is just like a phenomenon that's happening in nature and it's reflecting on a bunch of different things, especially with powerful people mm -hmm. tend to have eclipses that, that naturally happen at very key moments in their life, especially if they were born on an eclipse. But I, mean, I guess it's only if you see it in its totality that you you understand what the central thing is that's impressive about that, which is just that this is happening naturally without it in the background, without most people in the world realizing that it's happening. Mm -hmm. And it's just always, again, it's like oddly comforting to think that there's this larger organizing principle or this underlying organizing principle to um, human society or natural events or the whole universe. Um, and it's not just a hot mess of chaos and randomness. Yeah, there's something extraordinary. I mean, that's the central, most extraordinary thing about astrology that one can draw conclusion that you can draw from it, which has like huge implications and is kind of wild um, once you really sit with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long have we sat with it today? We've sat with it for three hours today. Oh, yeah. So uh, this is a pretty good, pretty average astrology podcast episode in terms of length. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but this is good. Thanks a lot for, for joining me for this today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna be just that person to just be like I'm sorry if it was like so heavy in the beginning when we we're talking about all these potential uh, future disasters and such. But I think we ended on a lighter note. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground and uh, touched on a lot of a lot of interesting things mm -hmm. um, as two Saturnian astrologers do. Yes, uh, through the course of a three-hour conversation, both wearing black. And, <laughs> Indeed. Um, good times. So yeah, good times. Um, I did want to mention just we talked about a little bit at the beginning, but just what is your work? What are you working on now with Honeycomb? Um, what do you got coming up in terms of that? Or is there anything we should know? You got any inside information you want to drop? I'm really excited about like astrological education and uh, develop, like I said, kind of developing more tools for helping people get the hang of of the basics or going from like beginner to intermediate. So um, yeah, I've just been like, personally I've been toying with different ways of either presenting that like in the course of a blog or of um, video content. So um, now that I'm publicly speaking that perhaps it will come into, into being perhaps next year in my first house perfection. <laughs> mm. When do you switch over again? Uh, it's at the end of March. Okay, that's coming up. Yeah, yeah, and I would like that. That's definitely an intention or a goal is to, um, yeah, to start like producing more of my own content that can present um, astrology in a way that I think is like coherent and accessible and um, yeah, helpful for people who are just trying to like get the hang of this wild language of the universe. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciate how the Honeycomb Almanacs and Calendars have made astrology more accessible to people in terms of following their own personal transits and knowing about that as well as the mundane transits at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I know we're at the end of the year right now, so this is usually the time where everybody rushes to get their like a new one for the, the end of the year before uh, we start a new one. It's true, yeah, which is always funny to me because it's like um, you know, because this this product is it's. It's created at the time that you um, request it to be created. So literally you can start it from any 
like any month of the year, any moment in the year. Mm -hmm. So if, like sometimes we'll have customers who like to start it um, in their birth month. So they get kind of like a solar, you know, solar return perspective, like bookmark it in April to April. Um, but it's still a very popular choice to align your honeycomb with the Gregorian calendar. Sure. Yeah. Well, it can be kind of a nice thing or, you know, people get it as like gifts and other things like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Holiday season stuff, um, which of course we um, paid you to plug in, the <laughs> in that November forecast episode, just, just uh, because everything is created, um, you know, bespoke to the person who was uh, requesting it to be created, that it takes time. And so it's not something that you can really do as a, like a last minute decision. Yeah. Takes yeah. time to bake. Yeah, bake the for sausage. sure. And this episode, just for clarification, was not like a sponsored episode or anything like that. True. We're just meeting up as friends to chat, chat astrology. Yeah, which I was was like, I don't want to focus too much on trying to be like product placement or anything like that. Sure. Uh, no, but this is definitely a good time to mention it. And th what's the website again? Uh, honeycomb.co. Honeycomb, for, just like short for Honeycomb Collective. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today for this episode. That was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. A special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. 
If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com.